0: What are you willing to die for? I think that's a big question that everybody should ask themselves. I mean, if you're a parent, obviously you'll die for your children, or should. And if you and if you wouldn't, then there's something wrong with you as a person. Um, most of us would die for our parents, kill for our parents. You know, there's that that bond. But beyond that, what are you willing to die for? We're going to find out this week in the final part of Dragon's Winter Night, Part Two. What are what our heroes are willing to die for? Last week Or not last week But last installment It's been a minute um, Also this is part four I said part three You said part two I said part two
1: You said part two huh. That's neither here nor there I can edit it to make it sound like you, Say, <laughs> Let's get a clear shot of you saying No two. it'll be fine It'll be part <laughs> of the show
0: um, In the last part Part three We had gone mm. The Knights of Salam- Salamnia had given the uh, Dragonorm to the gnomes of Mount Nevermind, those endlessly amusing and if we, I mean, the very tale of Mount Nevermind is one of the most m- most humorous and entertaining creations I've ever heard in any kind of fantasy. Um, they actually used that later on, I think, in another series called The Deathgate Cycle. But... Uh, these a lot of things from Dragonlance land to the Deathgate cycle. Um, why should Hickman are again, two of my, obviously two of my favorite, most favorite writers, but Fizban and Tasselhoff are now going to Mount nevermind to retrieve the dragon orb and go to this, uh, big meeting they're going to have about, again, most of this book is what are we going to do? You know, that's the, that's the overriding thing of everything. What are we going to do? So, um, you can imagine the endless... I'm, I'm imagining a a scene of Fizban and Tasselhoff walking into Mount Nevermind, this great, this mountain, this not a huge mountain, it'd be more like one of the Appalachian Mountains, but it is from top to bottom packed with machines that are belching steam and screaming alarms and <laughs> flinging people left and right and bursts of flame. You know, I, I've always loved... The, the very idea of the gnomes uh, of uh, of this world. Gnomes and other, you know, you have David the Gnome and stuff like that, and they're just little, little clever fellows who live in, you know, uh, holes in the ground, and they wear pointed hats and stuff like that. The, the, the gnomes of Kryn are not that. They are uh, kin to kender dwarves. Kender dwarves and gnomes are all related to each other. Like through the Greystone of Gargath Um, The gnomes Were actually were first and then they And then the Greystone split The the split two groups Of them one in the remember The curious ones who were trying to get the Gem were the kinder and the greedy ones Were the ones who became the dwarves So um, Don't ever Suggest that to a dwarf though that would would Be a, a, a deadly insult If I ever run across one I'll make sure not to make that comparison. (laughs) The dwarves in Kryn can be scary, but we'll we'll get into some really scary dwarves when we when we discuss uh, one Brunor Battlehammer in uh, who is a companion of Drit Steward and and, and, in some books coming up. Um, Did you say Brunor Battlehammer? Yes terrific name <laughs> fantasy has the best names. sometimes if he's
1: not three foot seven but <laughs> jacked as shit i'm gonna be so angry he, i can picture him however i want i guess
0: uh, well there's ample descriptions of the guy his nose has been broken a bunch of times and he's he's built like a barrel and he's strong you know he's just so um, pretty close to it yeah exactly probably has a bit of a gut <laughs> it's a dwarven gut see just ima- just <laughs> a, a dwarven gut if just imagine named- <laughs> well no just imagine a race of uh, homunculus, strong men, and you've got dwarves. I mean, they're that's so, so a lot like you. <laughs> Basic fucking <yes, laughs> fucking asshole. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, they're in Mount Nevermind, and um, we have a description. A Tasselhoff. It's I guess to see his first gnome, which is odd to me. In all his travels, he's never come across a gnome. Quote. Tasselhoff studied the gnome with excited curiosity. The Kinder had never seen a gnome before, although old legends concerning the gray gem, gray gem of Gargath indicated that the two races were distantly connected. Certainly, was something Kinderish in the young gnome, his slender hands, eager expression, and sharp, bright eyes intent on observing everything. But here the resemblance ended. There was nothing of the Kinder's easygoing manner. The gnome was ser- nervous, serious, and businesslike. Um, I like this. It's just a flurry of activity when they come in, like you know I'm not gonna some I'm gonna say to everybody in this episode, get used to something that's very almost cursory you know' because what happens at the end of this book is the is the ultimate part of the entire thing, and the things leading up to it are important of course, but i'm not there's not gonna be so much um reading you know quote to quote in this one it's just going to be more of a let's get to to the end so we can discuss this but um the gnomes are endlessly fascinated by everything and apparently have never seen a hoopack. his little staff say one of them grabs it and runs away with it and is running to take it to the examination room imagine a group of mad scientists that's what you've got with these gnomes about never mind like running around all the time you know they're geniuses but they're also absent-minded they you know do things that are markedly dangerous but you know i've always loved it um The gnomes have figured it out, have have, – one of the best things I like about this is that their names are just ridiculously – I mean, they speak so fast, and uh, they're trying to ask this gnome his name, um, and – he starts on this and fizzband says, no, wait! And the guy starts to yell as like, say his name, and it's like, just a, it's like, they went like this on a keyboard and just, you know, made a because that's how long their names are. Like an um, Eastern
1: European name.
0: Yeah, yes. Um, and then they, uh, he, uh, the Tassel, I saying, that's his name? That's your name? And he's like, yeah, it feels a book this big in a library. So, <laughs> So it's pretty funny um, But they get him finally to Instead of saying his whole name they say, They're they like "No, w- Wait a second Wait a second What do the knights call you? Because you know The knights and the gnomes Have a great Great relationship Trevor. They call me Trevor Nosh is his name no, G- like- G-N-O-S-H Nosh uh, Sort of like a, a Jewish Passover <laughs> thing I, I could have a nosh <laughs> yeah, That's what I was thinking When I first read it Um And he's, uh, they're asking where the dragon orb is, Um, quote, Still talking, he reached up and pulled a cord. This is Nosh. Uh, a whistle blew. Two bells and a gong ran out. Then with a tremendous blast of steam that nearly parboiled all of them, two huge steel doors located in the interior of the mountain began to slide open. Almost immediately, the door stuck, and when the, <laughs> within minutes, the place was swarming with gnomes, yelling and pointing and arguing about whose fault it was. Tessa Hoff Burfoot had been making plans in the back of his mind as to what he would do after this adventure had ended and all the dragons were slain. The kinder tried to maintain a positive outlook. The first thing he had planned to do was go to to spend a few months with his friend Seston the Gully Dwarf and Pax Tharkas. The Gully dwarves led interesting lives and Taz knew he could settle there quite happily as long as he had them to eat their cooking. But the moment Taz entered Mount Nevermind he decided the first thing he would do was come back and live with the gnomes. The kinder had never any, any, seen anything quite so wonderful in his entire life. He stopped dead in his tracks. Um, so he's fascinated by the way they, they do. Sh- they live and, and, and Mount Nevermind it, just in general. Um. He sees a bunch of catapults now. Um, he, he's like, you must be getting ready for a big battle. Um, quote, the Kender's voice died. Even, even as he watched, a whistle sounded, a catapult went off with a twang, and a gnome went sailing through the air. <laughs> Taz, Taz wasn't looking at machines of war. He was looking at the devices that replaced stairs. <laughs> The bottom floor of the chamber was filled with catapults, every type of catapult ever conceived by gnomes. There were sling catapults, crossbow catapults, willow spring catapults, steam-driven catapults, still experimental. They were working on adjusting the water temperature. Surrounding the catapults, over the catapults, under the catapults, and through the catapults were strung miles and miles of rope, which operated crazed assortments of gears and wheels and pulleys, all turning and squeaking and cranking. Out of the floor, out of the machines and cells, and thrusting out from the sides of the walls were huge levers, which scores of gnomes were either pushing or pulling, or sometimes both at once. You can imagine this um, <laughs> this chaotic sight. This is the best thing that's ever happened to off Burfoot in his life, maybe, other than seeing the dragon he thought was going to kill him. Um, Fizban is markedly less impressed. He's, you know, even though we know Fizban's nature is far more than what he appears he is markedly less impressed. He is freaking out because the whole thing is so chaotic. Um, <laughs> he was, and uh, Fizban was uh hoping they have to go to the examination room and Fizban. He's like, I hope that's on the ground level. And he said, no level 15. So they have to walk up to this catapult. Um, and of course, that's the greatest thing Tassoff has ever heard. He gets to ride on this thing now, um, ride on this catapult up to level fifteen. Um, then there's this whole problem about um Wolf, his band, Wolf says, "What you know? What happens if they when they throw you? You know what happens? He's like, well, they have nets. He's like, what are those miss? He's like, those are nets farther down. And then he." And <laughs> He's like well what if those fail? He's like well then there's a bunch of sponges on the floor <laughs> you know so he's like so it, it both helps it might help break your fall but if it doesn't it's very easy to clean up so um uh <laughs> I, I i again i this this whole thing i wish i could read it word for word because it is so entertaining the um the <laughs> And, and and the gnomes are very human in the way they think. Uh, what I'm even says. We've done studies that says that being shot out of a catapult is more... He said the, the statistics say it's safer than walking. Now I'm seeing <laughs> a bunch of gnomes in white <laughs> lab coats, clipboards. Basically, yes. I mean, and they all have pencils behind their ears, and like they're scribbling shit down. Some of them are um, way
1: up in, a, in an observing tower watching everything go down.
0: <laughs> um, but they... They have to get up to you know level Skimbosh, which is level fifteen, um, and Fizzban. Uh, is unfortunately the first one who's going to have to go. Quote, Taz stared open mouth at the sight of Fizban whizzing through the air propelled from below by the tremendous force of the catapult and suddenly the kinder saw that Nosh saw what Nosh was talking about. The net on level 15 instead of opening after the mage had flown past and then catching him as he started to fall open before the mage <laughs> were at level, reached level 15. Fizban hit the net and was flattened like a squash spider. For a moment, he clung there precariously, arms and legs akimbo, then he fell. Um... And then Fizband <laughs> starts to fall, which Tasselhoff is, of course, fascinated, but it's also his friend. He loves Band. so he's like, Well do something. Uh, quote, don't get so worked up, Nosh said angrily, and I'll finish what I was about to say about the final emergency backup system that is, oh, here it goes. Taz watched in amazement as the bottoms dropped out of huge, six huge barrels hanging from the walls on level three, sending thousands of sponges tumbling down onto the floor in the center of the chamber. This was done, apparently, in case all the nets on, on every level failed fortunately the net on level nine actually worked spreading out beneath the mage just in time then it folded up around him and whisked him over the balcony where the gnomes hearing the mage cursing and swearing it swearing inside appeared reluctant to let him out um and it's Tasselhoff's turn um Uh, Tassoff says Quote Just one last question Taz yelled at Noss As he sat down in the seat What happens if the Emergency backup system With the sponges fails Ingenious Noss said happily Because you see If the sponges Came down a little too late The alarm goes off Releasing a huge Barrel of water Into the center And since the sponges Are there already It's easy to clean up The mess The chief pulled the (laughs) lever So (laughs) Um, Step three Profit (laughs) Basically that's what You know um, I've always And again I've discussed before the gnomes in Ancelon, There's two kinds of gnomes and I didn't know this or it was an invention of the of, I think it's zeb cook who wrote Created the whole toutous continent in toutous. There's two kinds of gnomes They're the ones that we're dealing with now who are just mad scientists a bunch of them which half their shit never works And in the other half usually doesn't work how they want it to but sometimes they are you know moments of visionary you know genius then there's the other side of the family, the who are they're related to them, but they're another, I guess, another genetic variety where they're more serious-minded. They're more uh less absent-minded. They their machines work, but they're not as much genius, but they are that they work all the time. So um it's called the nomoi and the Minoi. The the Nomoy, I guess, are the ones who are more, you know, Common sense group and the men are these these are the men So after hearing this,
1: um, I guarantee you Trey Parker and Matt Stone were readers of this because <laughs> the underpants gnomes are a lot like this. In South Park, because everything's really
0: haphazard. I would guarantee that they had read these books. Guarantee it. Like, yeah, everything, they're nerds.
1: Whenever you get, whenever they go down to where they're doing the processing of the underpants, I guess, yeah. <laughs> like everything's really haphazard. There's steam all there's shits going on. it's yeah, a really good point. Collect underpants. Step two. Yeah. Step three. Profit. <laughs> right. Like, so they're really haphazard and they're just jacked about doing
0: everything, but they just don't really know what they're doing. Well, the readership of the Dragonlance books is so massive. Like you know. People don't understand how truly, how many people have read these books. Like I said, this. They also remind me of Appalachians a lot, the way we jerry rig everything. Yeah. (laughs) um, It's definitely. um, But, you know, like I was saying, these books would have been in, you know, I wore this shirt, the Dungeon Dragon shirt, on purpose today just to remind myself of. This came out virtually, well, this came out almost when the Red Box set had come out. When I was younger I didn't realize this. Uh because when I was younger, it's when those books were released. Like the first one was released in nineteen eighty-four, I think, or you know, even eighty-three. Um Dragon's Vault and Twilight was released then. And like I said, the the kids on Stranger Things definitely have these books on their shelf. Um uh with Will being the one who probably liked it most. Um you know, they were a huge cultural touchstone with with that generation, which is the generation before my generation. You know, I was I was I was their little brother and little yeah, sister. Stranger
1: age. Things kids
0: would be fifty now. Yeah, they're, they're my sisters' age. Blows my mind. Um, then we uh, they finally get to the examination level. Quote. Tad's been expecting All sorts of fascinating things In the examination room But he found it To his surprise Nearly empty It was lighted by a hole Drilled through the face Of the mountain Which emitted the sunlight This simple but ingenious device Had been suggested to the gnomes By a visiting dwarf Who called it a window The gnomes were quite proud of it There were three tables But little else On the central pa- table Surrounded by gnomes Rested the dragon orb And his hoop pack. It was back to its original size Taz noticed with interest It looked the same Still a round piece of crystal With a kind of milky colored mist Swirling around inside A young knight. With an intensely bored expression on his face, stood near the orb, guarding it. His bored expression changed abruptly at the approach of strangers. Um, the gnome that they're with, this is his life quest to study a Dragon Orb. The gnomes have a life quest, and it's been passed down from generation to generation. That becomes um, more. Important later, like you know, it's a um, not a huge plot point, but it you know it it actually becomes kind of humorous. Um, Fizzban becomes markedly less befuddled and stuff like that, and um, FizzBand just essentially takes the dragon order from him. It's mine now. Well, I mean, he's just he's immensely powerful, and um, the gnome the gnome Nosh decides to go with him. Um, Fizban said he had looked in the future with Dragon Orb Um, and uh, Tassel asked him about it quote what did you see Taz asked hesitantly not certain from the major somber expression that he wanted to know I saw two roads stretch before us. If we take the easiest, it will appear the best at the beginning, but darkness will fall at the end, never to be lifted. If we take the other road, it will be hard and difficult to travel. It will cost the lives of some we love, dear boy. Worse, it might, it might cost the others their very souls. But only through these great sacrifices will we find hope. Fizzbang closes his eyes. Quote, suddenly a, lamp, a lump formed in Taz's throat choking him he His head dropped into his hands This adventure was turning out all wrong Where was Tannis, and dear old Can- Caraman And pretty Tika He tried not to think about it, about them particularly after that dream And Flint, I shouldn't have gone without him Taz thought miserably He might die, and he might be dead right now The lives of some you love I never thought about any of us dying, not really I always figured if we were together we could beat anything But now we've gotten scattered somehow And things are going all wrong Taz felt Fizbans Hand stroke his top knot His one great vanity And the first time In his life The kinder felt very lost And alone and frightened The mage's grip Tightened around him affectionately, burying his face In, in T- Fizban's sleeve Taz began to cry F- Fizban patted him gently Yes ma- The mage re- re- Repeated Important people um, I've always loved this That uh, Tasselhoff is Started out Very happy-go-lucky But then he, he's He so loves his friends That now It's starting to you know, hit home even to him how terrifying this whole thing is. the The stakes are getting really high. You know, it was a it was a fun adventure for a while. And, you know, they all made it through. You know, he'd seen some amazing things, but now he's just thinking about his friends. And he doesn't want him any of them to get hurt. He's a very, as we've discussed before, I think Tashoff is everybody's favorite character. He's so lovable and innocent and and funny and you know, he's like a. A lovable scamp he is but he's also <laughs> he gets into he gets into some crazy adventures later on too i mean um this is just the beginning with him he you know the kinder race was something that the Dragonlance creators created they didn't like hobbits and halflings so they said well we need another race that's you know holds that niche but we want them to be you know, I think they were created because they needed a party to in a, dun, in a Dungeons and Dragons, you know, sense as in you know cleric dwarf all that stuff, and they didn't just want a thief. So he said, "Well, why don't we just create somebody that doesn't steal for personal gain? He just steals because he's curious." So they created a whole race around. He's it. borrowing. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, it didn't have
0: anybody's name on it. Then we come to uh, the three of them: uh, Fizzban, Tassahoff and uh nosh come to the council of whitestone which is a um it's a very important place um in Ancelon. um it's where all the races get to meet you know and i don't understand i don't understand how they created who was who and who got you know but anyway quote Seated members, those who could vote, included the Knights of Salamnia, the Gnomes, the Hill Dwarves, the dark-skinned seafaring people of Norgan Ergoth, and a representative of the Salamnic exiles living on Sandcrest. Advisory member- members were the Elves, the Mountain Dwarves, and the Kinder. These members were invited to express their opinions, but they could not vote. The first council meeting, however, had not gone well. Some of the old views and animosities between the ra- races bursted into flame. Armin Karras, represented the mountain dwarves, and Duncan Hammerrock, great, that's, God, that's a great name, of the hill dwarves, had to be physically restrained, restrained at one point, or blood from that ancient feud might have flowed again. Alana Starbreeze, represented the Sil- Sylvanesti in her father's absence, refused to speak a word during the entire session. Alana had come only because Portheos of the Kualanesti was there. She feared an alliance between the Kualanesti and the humans and was, was determined to prevent it." Um Basically, this is a meeting to discuss what they're gonna do with Dragonlance. It's not going well. Um you know, Gunther, Lord Gunther, uh Uth Wiston, the the guy who's the good knight, um, uh, you know, the older guy who blessed Sturm as his own son. I really love Sir Gunther, he's a great character. He's come for the Slamnic Knights. Um you know everybody's there porthios and this and so star and the or so star and his, uh, you know lorana's father and porthios is her brother um, they've come a lot i don't know if she's at this one but there's another representative of the silvanesti um, you know this is big doings so um, we also get the first meeting between uh, lord gunther or sir gunther whatever and Elistan. Um, Elstan remember being the Cleric of Paladine Like the first one Who's spreading the word Quote The knight's eye Studied Elstan curiously Gunther hardly knew What he had expected to see In a purported cleric of Paladine Perhaps a weak-eyed aesthetic aesthetic, Pale and lean from study Gunther was not prepared For this tall, well-built man Who might have have ridden To battle with the best of his knights The ancient symbol of Paladine A a platinum, platinum medallion Engraved with a dragon Hung about his neck um you know there it's he's an impressive man you know um the gunther likes him immediately pretty much um they him and his his body servant Michael start talking um quote certainly not what i would have expected michael answered his gaze falling gunthers more like the stories we've heard of the clerics of old the ones that guided the nights and the days before the cataclysm he's not much like these charlatans we've got now ellistan is a man who would stand beside you on the field of battle calling down paladine's blessing with one hand while wielding his mace with the other he wears a medallion that none have seen since the gods abandoned us but is he a true cleric michael shrugged it would take a lot more than a, a medallion to convince me um, Gunther agrees but I think they Have it's a cursory uh, Discussion they both Are on board with Elistan. Um, we get a description of The uh, glade where the uh, Whitestone is um, I always thought it was a good one quote As Gunther said the Salamnic people Had always been faithful followers of the gods Long ago, long ago in the days before the cataclysm The glade of the Whitestone white Stone Had been one of the holy centers of worship The phenomenon of the white rock Had attracted the attention of the curious long than anyone Remembered the king priest of Vistar himself Had blessed the huge white rock that sat in the middle Of a perpetually green glade Declaring it sacred to the gods and forbidding Any mortal being to touch it Even after the cataclysm when belief in the old gods Died the glade remained a sacred place Perhaps that was because not even the cataclysm had affected it. Legend held that when the fire mountains fell from the sky, the gl- the ground around the white stone cracked and split apart, but the white stone remained intact. So awesome was the sight of the huge white rock that even now none dared approach or ev- or touch it. What strange powers possessed none could say. All they knew is that the air around the white white stone was always spring like and warm, no matter how bitter the weather. Wet- winter, the grass in White Stone Glade was always green. Um. So, as you can see, it's a very magical place. Then um, everybody comes in um, to take their seats. Uh, the elves not looking at each other. The two uh, groups, the Sylvanesti and Qualaneste, poor Theos and his father came in, and uh, Lord Gunther... Um, He's he's observing them we're, we he's he's the he's the POV character in this point. He's we're seeing things from his point of view. Um, and he sees the speaker and this is kind of shocking, not shocking, but something you wouldn't expect. Quote, the, P, the speaker was so stooped that he seemed almost crippled. His hair was gray, his face haggard. But as he took his seat and turned to gaze to the witnesses, Gunther saw the elf's lights were bright and eyes were bright and arresting lord quinath seated next to him was known to gunther who considered him as arrogant and proud as Porthos of the quail to be lacking in the intelligence porthios possessed as for Porthos, gunther thought he could probably come to like the speaker's eldest son quite well porthios had every characteristic the knights admired with one exception his quick temper gunther's observations were inter- interrupted for now it was time for the voting council members to enter and gunther had to take his place first came mere carthon of northern ergoth uh a dark complexioned man with iron gray hair and the eyes of a gi- arms of a giant. Next came Sarah de Mar- Marthasol representing the exiles of Sanchrist, and finally Lord Gunther and Lamia. Um I'm pretty sure that the 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 black guy, the uh Northern Ergothian, Ur- is uh this other character that we're gonna meet later, uh is their father. Um Fizzban is sitting there too, Tasselhoff. Um, The um, Speaker of the Suns basically stands up and says um, basically suggests that we're going to take the Dragon Orb, the three Elven nations, and we'll keep it until such time as it's needed. Really an arrogant thing to say um, because everybody's like, who are you man you know we all have a vote in this and you don't get to just dictate to us but that's the elves of course they're they're always trying to dictate to other people what they're going to do because they're the longest lived and most powerful Um, it's a very again very arrogant thing to do Um, I love Lord Gunther's response because he's he's a knight and polite but he's also very uh, he's a a shrewd politician Lord Gunther, quote, Lord Gunther, after listening and nodding for several minutes, rose to his feet to respond. His speech was cool, calm, complimentary to the elves. But it said between the lines, the knights would see the elves in the abyss before they gave him the dragon orb. Um, but the speaker is no less a politician, and he reads between the lines. And then he says, quote, then Lord Gunther, the speaker, said the elves declare that from this time on, we are at war. This whole thing is going south really quick. Um. Everybody starts yelling at each other. It's really it's it's really just not going well. Um Tasselhoff is watching this in despairing. Quote tasselhoff looked around despairingly for Elistan. He kept hoping desperately the cleric would come. Ellistan would could calm these people down. Or maybe Lorana. Where was she? There'd been no word of his friends. The elders had told him the kinder coldly. She and her brother had apparently vanished in the wilderness. I shouldn't have left them, tass thought. I should I shouldn't be here why why did this crazy old mage bring me i'm useless maybe Fizzban could do something taz looked at the mage hopefully but Fizzban was sound asleep please wake up taz bag shaking him somebody's got to do something um then he heard lord gunther um talk about lorana how she had gotten the dragon orb and you know at you know basically trying to praise her for her bravery and you know sacrifice um speaker didn't want to have it and he says i don't have a daughter is what he says remember he considers her a human or a human whore for chasing her half-elf lover you know basically he's going to call her that and he's a she's a disappointment to him um which i know it's a fictional character but also upsets me on her behalf because I, I really like lorana she's so lovable of a character um but also that really upsets tassoff Quote, something broke within Tasselhoff. Confused memories of Lorana fighting desperately against the evil wizard who guarded the orb, Lorana battling dra- draconians, Lorana firing her bow at the white dragon, Lorana mis- ministering to him so tenderly when he'd been their death, to be cast off by her own people when she was working so desperately to save them, when she had to sacrifice so much. Stop this, ta- Tasselhoff heard himself yelling at the top of a voice. Stop this right now and listen to me. And then to his own amazement, they all do uh, all these really powerful people look at him like again the everybody else views the kinder as children you know uh, either in a good way or a bad way like i'm sure the elves because they're not human view them in a better light than probably the humans do because you know they consider them race of these which there's a point to be had about that but a lot of people also know how good natured and sweet the kinder are. There are no evil kinder, to my to my knowledge. Um interesting though, in Taladus, as things again are torn uh, uh, turn turned on their head, there's a group called the Marat Kinder who are were just like any other kinder until the cataclysm struck and you know uh and in in Talos is called Hite's night. Hite's night is the as in it's the, that evil god's night. And um their lives were completely like turned upside down and destroyed. So that gave them a very harsh outlook on life. They're still kinder. They're still curious, but now it's a paranoia curious. They steal things because they don't want they don't want people to use them against them. Or things like that. Um you know, it's a very sad I actually asked Margaret Weiss, uh, when we were chatting on um Twitter. On Twitter. I said, What do you think Tasselhoff would think of the Merrick Kinder? And I don't I don't remember her reply. um she basically refer uh referred me to um the guy who who'd written the Talos book Chris Pearson who are they are good books but i always wanted to see that how he i think his heart would be broken to see his people excuse me reduced to being uh, sad and paranoid you know because he knows his people to be happy you know they might be uh, annoy other people but they 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 know what they are and they and they're okay with it they like it they said you know we Yes, we're curious. Yes, we get on people's nerves and stuff, but we all what we try to be Good to everybody and love everybody and they do you know, um it's really quite a uh, Actually thought about writing that one time just to, you know just to see how I would you know describe him meeting them um, Tesshoff demands to he demands right to uh, represent his people um Quote, flipping his tassel of brown hair over his shoulder, the kinder came to stand right in front of the dragon orb. Looking up, he could see the white stone towering over it and over him. Tess stared at the stone, shivering, then quickly turned his gaze from the rock to Gunther and the Speaker of the Suns. And then Tasselhoff knew what he had to do He began to shake with fear he tassel burfoot who'd never been afraid of anything in his life He'd faced dragons without trembling but the knowledge of what he was going to do now appalled him His hands felt to have been making snowballs without gloves on his tongue seemed to belong in some larger person's mouth But Taz was resolute. He just had to keep them talking keep them guessing from what he planned I love the way they describe how he sees things. He sees things very childlike you know his, instead of thinking of his hands being cold because he's afraid it's an unfamiliar sensation you know he's like i don't understand why my hands feel like they're cold when they're not so you know just thinking about making snowballs without mittens on um and then he begins to say quote you've never taken us kinders very seriously you know taz began his voice sounding too loud and shrill in his own ears and i can't say i blame you blame you much we don't have a strong sense of responsibility i guess and we're probably too curious for our own good but i ask you how are you going to find anything if you're not curious um they're not having it. The uh, speaker is scowling at him. Lord Gunther scowling at him, um, but he continues. "Quote: We cause lots of trouble, I suppose, without meaning to, and occasionally some of us do happen to acquire things which aren't ours. But one thing that Kinder know is Tasselhoff broke broken to a run, quick and lithe as a mouth Mouse. He slipped." Easily through the hands that tried to catch him, reaching the dragon orb within a matter of seconds. Faces blurred around him, mouths opened, shrieking and yelling at him, but they were too late. In one swift, smooth moment, Tassel hurled the dragon orb with a huge, gleaming white stone. The round, gleaming crystal, its inside swirling in agitation, hung suspended in the air for long, long seconds. Tam- Tana's- Taz wondered if the orb had the power to halt its flight, but it was just a fevered impression in Kender's mind. The dragon orb struck the rock and shattered, bursting into a thousand sparkling pieces. For an instant, a ball of milky white light... Sp- White smoke hung in the air as if trying desperately to hold itself together. Then the war spring, warm spring-like breeze of the glade caught it and swept it apart. There was intense, awful silence. The Kender stood, looking calmly down the shattered dragon orb. We know, he said in a small voice that dropped in the dreadful silence like a tiny drop of rain. We should be fighting dragons, not each other. No one moved. No one spoke spoke there was a thump nosh had fainted this <laughs> is his life quest and he's just dashed it to pieces literally right in front of his face um as you can imagine people aren't pleased um it's basically a race to see who's going to kill him first porthios or lord gunther lord Gunther wouldn't have killed him but he definitely would have i don't know what he would have done he's a good man but in the moment he might have he might have hurt taz um I like to think he wouldn't, but let's face it, he probably would have. Um, Porthias, uh, had pulled his sword out and was going to kill Taz just, you know, kill him for, um, for destroying their only hope, is what he says. Um, Taz re- resigns himself to it. He thinks he's done the right thing, but he knows this was what's going to happen. And, and again, remember, kinder aren't afraid of fear. But then, of course, out of nowhere, quote, now, now, now said a sleepy voice. No one's going to die. At least not this moment. Quit waving that sword around Portia. Someone will get hurt. Taz peered out from under a heaving sea of arms and shining armor to see Fizban yawning, step over the inner body of the gnome and totter toward them. Elvis and hum- humans made way for him to pass. as was compelled to do so by an unseen force. Um, Porthios threatens Fizban said, you, if you don't shut up, you're going to share in his punishment. Um, uh, I love this reaction quote I said quit waving that sword around Fizban snapped irritably wiggling a finger at the sword Porthios dropped his weapon with a wild cry clutching his stinging burning hand he stared down at the sword in astonishment the hilt had grown thorns Fizban came to stand out next to the elf lord and regard, regarded him angrily you're a fine young man but you should have been taught some respect from you for your elders I said to put that sword down in a minute maybe next time you'll believe me fizz baleful gaze switched to the speaker and you saw star and were a good man about 200 years ago managed to raise three fine children three fine children i said don't give me any of this nonsense about nonsense about not having a daughter you have one and a fine girl she is more sense than her father must take after her mother's side where was i oh yes you brought up tennis Taf- half elven too you know stole a star in between the four of these young people we might yet say this world um Fizban Of course as we've discussed before uh, Is much more than he seems Um, All these powerful people are looking at this mage who can't remember his name most of the time and they don't they're they They're they're not under their own power like they can't do anything about it They just stare at him like I can't believe this is how you know It's pretty amazing Um, then he's going to go he's going to talk to him so he walks over and he leans against the white stone no mortal can touch the white stone he just leans against it so um and then he uh begins to speak quote where was i before i was interrupted fizzman scowled glancing around his gaze fell on the broken pieces of the orb oh yes i was about to tell you a story one one of you would have won the orb, of course and you would have taken it either keep it safe either to either to keep it safe or to save the world, in quotation marks. And yes, it is capable of saving the world, but only if you know how to use it. Who of you has this knowledge? Who has the strength? The orb was created by the greatest, most powerful mages of old. All the most powerful. Do you understand? It was created by those of the white robes and those of the black robes. It has the essence of both evil and good the red robes brought both essences together and bound them with their force few few there are now with the power and strength to understand the orb to fathom its secrets and get, to gain mastery of it few indeed fizzban 's eyes gleamed and none who sit here um he's basically telling them um, you know you would have destroyed everything if you had tried to do this um, but then, a typical typically fizzband thing happens. Quote A sudden gust of wind caught the old mage's hat, blowing off his head and tossing it playfully away from him. Snarling in irritation, Fizzband crawled forward to pick it up. Just as the mage leaned over, the sun broke through the clouds. There was a blazing flash of silver, followed by a splintering, deafening crack as the land itself had split apart. Half blinded by the flaring light, people blinked and gazed in fear and awe at the terrifying sight before their eyes. The white stone had been split asunder. The old mate, old magician lay sprawled at its base, his hat clutching in his hand, his other arm flung over his head in terror. He he wasn't terrified, <laughs> I guarantee it. Above him, piercing a rock where, been, where he had been sitting, was a long weapon made of gleaming silver. It had been thrown by the silver arm of a black man who walked over to stand beside it. Accompanying him were three people, an elven woman dressed in leather armor, an old white bearded dwarf, and Elistan. Amid the stunned silence of the crowd, the black man reached out and lifted the weapon from the splintered remains of the rock. He held it high above his head, and the silver barbed point glittered brightly in the days of the midday sun. "'I am Theros Ironfeld,' he called out in a deep voice, "'and for the last month I have been forging these.' He shook the weapon in his hand. "'I have taken molten silver from the well deep, hidden deep within the heart of the mountain of the silver dragon.' monument of the silver dragon that is with the silver arm given me by the gods i've forged a weapon as legend foretold and this i bring to you to all the people of Kryn, that when we join together and defeat the great evil that threatens to engulfs engulfs engulf us in darkness forever i bring you the dragon lance so big deal um it is the name of the world after all the dragon lance universe so Um, of course more discussion now i mean the the races still aren't really working together um but now that they have nothing to fight over meetings pretty much adjourned um and now they have the dragon lances so uh they're discussing what they're going to do with them uh again it doesn't go well i mean there, there are really no happily ever afters in Korean. It seems to me, um, uh, Gilfinus, I mean, Lauren and Porthios and so star and the speaker discuss things and, um, it's, it's a terrible thing, but the speaker basically has washed his hands of his daughter. He, he still believes that he doesn't have a daughter and, um, Portheos, of course, thinks she's not acting like a proper elven woman um, She knows where gilthinus is but Because um, he um, the speaker asked where gilthinus is remember the younger brother and She knows but she can't tell him and that pretty much seals the deal She's like, you know If you're not gonna trust me to tell me where my son is or tell me uh, You know if he's safe then I've got really nothing more to say to you Um. The Council of Whitestone, however, had voted unanimously to make more of the Dragon Lances and unite all races in the fight against the Dragon Armies. So, some good came out of, out of it. Um, and again, there has to be more discussion. Uh, I love this great this Flint Fire Forge line. Quote, That remains a matter we must discuss, the speaker said. Don't discuss it too long, Flint Fire Forge snapped, or you might find yourself discussing it with a Dragon Lord. <laughs> The elves keep their own counsel and ask for no advice from dwarves. The speaker replied coolly. Besides, we don't even know if these lances work. Legends that he would be forged by one of the silver arm, that is certain, but also says the hammer of Karras was needed in the forging. Where is the hammer now? Um, that's basically, that, that's true, but Therese Einfeld is so skilled that he didn't need the hammer of Karras. Um, Lorana begins to talk to Lord Gunther um, about what's going on then she learns of uh Sturm's trial lorana really loves Sturm. like not in a romantic way of course but i could see her like in another world being attracted to him you know he's um he's handsome he's you know very honorable but he's also got a really good heart um Quote, shocked and outraged at Gunther's story of Sturm's trial, Lorana had gone before a council of knights to speak in Sturm's defense. Although the appearance of a woman at a council was unheard of, the knights were impressed by this vibrant, beautiful young woman's eloquent speech on Sturm's behalf. The fact that Lorana was a member of the royal elven household, and that she had brought the dragon lances, also spoke highly in her favor. Yeah, no shit. Uh, even Derek's faction, those that remained, were hard-pressed to falter, but the knights had been able to reach a decision. The man appointed to stand in Lord Alfred's place was strongly in Derek's tent, as the phrase went and lord michael had vacillated to such a degree that lord gunther had been forced to throw the matter to an open vote the knights demanded a period of reflection and the meeting was adjourned they had recovered this afternoon, reconvened this afternoon apparently gunther had just come for the meeting um it went well uh, Quote, Gunther grinned and rubbed his hand together. She had asked if he'd been pardoned. Not pardoned, my dear. That would have implied his guilt. No, he has been completely vindicated. I push for that. Pardon would not have suited us at all. His knighthood is granted. He has his command officially bestowed upon him. And Derek is in serious trouble. Um, Gunther wants Lorana. She wants to. Lorana wants to go find Tannis. Um, but gunther convinces her that she has to take the dragon lances to the tower of palanthus where the knights sturm and the rest of the knights are you know preparing for you know the dragon the dragon armies to come through uh, the pass so she doesn't want to actually she kind of resents Lord Gunther a little bit because she sees him using her and Sturman's political play and he doesn't really deny it but he said but that's the world we're in he's like I'm trying to he's like I don't want to do this but this is if this knighthood falls apart everything falls apart and he's absolutely correct I mean they cannot win without the Knights of Salamnia even even as embattled and divided as they are they still are the most powerful you know uh fighting force in Ansalon. so um
1: Um. Hold on. Okay, bud.
0: The Heimlich. Just got gas. Um, she fought it, but of course. But here, quote. In the end, of course lorana agreed to go to palanthas as gunther had known she must as the time of her departure drew near she began to dream almost nightly of tanis arriving on the island just hours after she left more than once she was on the verge of refusing to go but then she thought of facing tanis of, ha- of telling having to tell him she'd refuse to go to sturm to warn him of this peril this kept her from changing her mind this and her regard for sturm it was during lo- the lonely nights when her heart and her arms ached for Tanis, and she had had visions of holding that human woman with the dark curly hair, flashing brown eyes, and the charming crooked smile, that her soul was in turmoil. Her friends could give her little comfort. One of them, Elistan, left when a messenger arrived from the elves requesting the cleric's presence and asking that an emissary from the knights accompany him accompanying him, there was little time for farewells. When, within a day of the arrival of the elven messenger, Ellis and Lord Alfred's son, a solemn, serious young man named Douglas, began their journey back to southern Ergoth. Lorana had never felt so alone as she bid her mentor goodbye. Um, then Tasselhoff going to have to say goodbye to Fizban. Um, kind of a emotional parting, but Fizban has gone back to his befuddled self. Um, the the gnome is beside himself still with uh of what they're going to do um but then uh i think it's tasselhoff is it tasselhoff no fizz says we have to look at this from a proper perspective now you can see it from the inside out you can study it so um quote nosh and Fizband cordoned off the area and set to work for the next two days Fizband stood in the broken white stone making diagrams supposedly marking the exact location of each piece before it was picked up one of Fizband's diagrams accident, accidentally ended up in the Kender's pouch taz discovered later that it was actually known actually a game known as x's and zeros which the mate had been playing against himself and apparently had lost <laughs> But Josh, we meanwhile, crawled happily around in the grass, sticking bits of parchment adorned with numbers on pieces of glass smaller than the bits of parchment. He and Fizban finally collected the 2,687 pieces of dragon orb in a basket and transported them back to mountain. Nevermind. So that's a, kind of a... Um, It's a very specific number for all the pieces Well I mean it is a gnome And he probably did find all those Um, Is he uh, autistic is that how it can count Too too fast (laughs) They kind of are I would think I mean that's uh, for all intents and purposes Um, Well Taz says goodbye to Fizban now And and, uh, Fizban tells him Quote, you'll love Polanthus, beautiful city. Give Stern my regards. Oh, and Tasselhoff, the old magician, looked at him shrewdly. You did the right thing, my boy. I did, Taz said hopefully. I'm glad. He hesitated. I wondered about what you said. The dark path, did I? fizzband's face grew grave as he gripped ta- Taz firmly on the shoulder. I'm afraid so, but you have the courage to walk it. I hope so, Taz said with a small sigh. Well, goodbye. I'll be back just as soon as the war's over. Oh, I probably won't be here, Fizban said, shaking his head so violently that his hat slid off. As soon as a new weapon's perfected, I'll be leaving for... He paused. Where was that I was supposed to go? I can't seem to recall. But don't worry. We'll meet again. At least you're not bearing, leaving me buried under a pile of chicken feathers, he muttered, searching for his hat. Taz picked it up and handed it to him. Goodbye, the kinder said, a choke in his voice. Goodbye, goodbye, Taz, Fizban waved cheerfully. Then, giving the names a hunted glance, he pulled Taz over to him. Um i seem to have forgotten something what was my name again <laughs> it's just you know um then we have a very i mean the cl- the clues for who Fizzban is will really start to add up because now we have an encounter between him and elistan quote Elistan was pacing the shores of Sancrist, waiting for the boat that would take him back to southern Ergoth. The young man Douglas, walked along beside him. The two were deep in conversation. Elistan explaining why the ways of the ancient gods, the ways of the ancient gods to a rapt and attentive listener. Suddenly, Elistan looked up to see the old, befuddled magician he had seen at the council meeting. Elistan tried for days to meet the old mage, but Fizban always avoided him. Thus, it was with astonishment Elistan saw the old man come walking toward him, now along the shoreline. His head was bowed. He was muttering to himself. For a moment, Elistan thought he would pass by without noticing them, when suddenly the old mage raised his head. Oh, I say, haven't we met, he asked, blinking. For a moment, Elistan did not, could not speak. The cleric's face turned death, deathly turned deathly white beneath his weather tan he was finally able to answer the old mage his voice was husky indeed we have sir i did not realize it before now and though we were but lately introduced i feel that i have known you for a long long time indeed the old man scowled suspiciously you're not making some sort of comment on my age are you no certainly not elistan smiled the old man's face cleared well have a pleasant journey and a safe one farewell ling on a bent and battered staff the old man toddled on past him suddenly he stopped and turned around oh by the way, the name's Fizban. I'll remember," Elistan said gravely, bowing. "Fizban, please." The old magician nodded and continued on his way along the shoreline, while Elistan, suddenly thoughtful and quiet, re- resumed his walk with a sigh. Um, I mean, that's a kind of a big clue. Um, I've always loved the character of Fizban. Uh, he's so good-natured, but yet you know, moves things along. He's like a you think his friends call him fizzy um i know what his friends call him fizzy Bob, and his family so um will we get to that later yes we okay. will and uh the interactions between him and his family are like really uh, really uh amazing actually um because they're all very powerful but they squabble like regular people really um then we go to Tannis, uh, Tannis and Company, Tannis, Karamantika, Riverwind, Gold Moon. Um, I think that's yes, that's all of them. Uh, they're trying to find passage from Flotsam to go to Palanthas, on um, Raceland, of course. Um, and the they find a a ship called the Paracon, and uh, it's it's uh, crewed by a black skinned lady named Mac- Carthon. As you'll remember, the guy who was at the Council of Whitestone, his last name was Carthon. It might be Smith, but I don't think it is. I think they're actually related um quote they were on board the paracon sitting in the captain's cabin across from the captain herself Makesta carthon was one of the dark-skinned race living in northern ergoth her people had been sailors for centuries and it was popular to believe could speak the language of seabirds and dolphins Tannis found himself thinking with theris einfeld he'd look at Makesta. the woman's skin was shining black her hair tightly curled and bound with a gold band around her forehead her, her eyes were brown and shining as her skin but there was a glint of steel but there was the glint of steel from the dragon at her belt and the glint of steel in her eyes. Um, they want to go. Um, again, they're, they're trying to find a port for her. They're taken to it, but they can't tell her where, where, they need to go and all that stuff. Um, she finally gets upset and says, you know, you either to trust me or not. I'm going to take you, you know, um, and they finally tell her Calaman. Calaman is a place near Palanthus, I'm pretty sure. I think that's where they're wanting to go is Palanthus. Um, then she leads them up to her ship. Um, quote, Mac led them onto the deck. The ship seemed fit and trim and as far as Tannis, who knew nothing about ships, could tell. Her voice and manner had been cold when they first talked to her, but when she showed them around her ship, she seemed to warm up. Tanis had seen the same expression, heard the same warm tones Mac used in talking about her ship that Tika used when talking about Caraman. The paracon was obviously Mack's only love. Um They walk past the helmsman as they're going up, and Tannis recognizes him. Um Quote, "'Who is he?' Tanis asked in a low voice as they walked toward her cabin once more to conclude their business. "'Who? "'Baram?' she asked, glancing around. "'He's the helmsman. Don't know much about him. He came around a few months back looking for work, took him on as a deck swab. Then my helmsman was killed in a small altercation with, well, never mind. But this fellow turned out to be a damn good hand at the wheel. Better than the first, in fact. "'He's an odd one, though. A mute.' never speaks never goes ashore if he can help it Rose named name down for me in the ship's book or i wouldn't have known that much about him why she asked noticing tannis studying the man intently baron was tall well built at first sight one i'm guessing might be middle-aged by human terms his hair was gray his face was clean and shaven deeply tanned and weathered for months spent on board the ship but his eyes were youthful clear and bright the hands that held this needle were smooth and strong at the hands of a young man Elvin blood Pratt's, tannis thought but if so they weren't impaired in his features um this is the man that was at Pax yes. Uh The one who they thought got killed with uh, Eben Shatterstone, you know, that plot device character they brought in who, you know, it was never much in doubt that he was an actual spy. They gave him a cool ass name too. Yeah, it is a great name, I have to admit. Um, Tannis is going to go out and buy some supplies after they go back to the inn, after they've secured, um, you know, passage on Paracon. Um. quote Tannis walked down the crowded streets of flotsam no one give him a second glance at his dragon armor Um, I forgot to mention that that's actually kind of a big thing Uh, to get around the city Tannis and Karaman uh, found two human officers in the dragon army and I, I killed him probably I mean I don't know if they it doesn't say if they kill him really but uh, Karaman swept their heads together picked them up and swept their heads together you know that's probably probably killed him um, and uh, he thinks that they stole uniforms from uh, people with a high rank because people are like bowing to him and staying out of his way and stuff as he goes down the alley though um, uh, ironically enough he's attacked by an elf and um, um, the elf has got him on his back. He's tripped him and got him down. And uh, Tannis even, even tries to say something in Elven, like "I'm you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a dragon army officer, you know." But the elf in not hearing him because apparently this the dragon army has killed his family. Um, but as the killing, as the elf is getting ready to kill him, uh, this happens. Uh, quote: His spear plunged downward. Suddenly, the elf. Eyes grew wide, riveted in shock. The spear fell from his nervous fingers as a sword punctured him from behind. The dying elf fell with a shriek, landing heavily upon the pavement. Tennis looked up in astonishment to see what saved his life. A dragon high lord stood over the elf's body. I heard you shouting and one of my officers I heard you shouting and saw one of my officers in trouble. I guess you needed some help, said the High Lord, reaching out a gloved hand to help Tennis up. Confused, dizzy with pain and knowing only that he mustn't give himself away, Tannis accepted the High Lord's hand and struggled to his feet. Ducking his face, thankful the dark shadows in the alley, Tannis mumbled words of thanks in in a harsh voice. Then he saw the High Lord's eyes behind the mask widen. Tannis? Half elf felt a shudder shudder run through his body, a pain as, as swift and sharp as the elven spear. He could not speak. He could only stare at the High Lord swiftly as the High Lord swiftly removed the blue and gold dragon mask. tanis said, It is you, the High Lord cried, grasping him by the arms. Tannis saw bright brown eyes, a crooked charming smile, Kitiara. Um uh, As we've discussed, um Tannis is torn between Lorana, uh and Kitty Ara. I've always been firmly in Camp Lorana. But there's a debate amongst the readers. You know, Kitty Ara is a fascinating character. She's strong. She's very, you know, she's a especially in a time where there weren't many strong female characters in fantasy. Um, remember all the most of the of the strong female characters in Lord of the Rings and stuff like that were uh, we're not in the books. They were creations for the movie, so we could, you know, get the SJWs off of everybody's back. But that being said, I, I like those characters. I thought that uh, Liv Tyler's um, portrayal of uh, Arwen was was good. I thought uh, I, I liked the way they incorporated into it. It actually was a better plot device and stuff like that. But anyway, um, oh, and they and they Miranda Otto though, you know, played. Uh, can't remember her name she was a a one of the riders the king of rohan's daughter and she ended up being a warrior in her own right so i should take that back sometimes there are strong characters in fantasy but you know this was at a time when there weren't very many so kitty Aura is you know she's very uncom- uncompromising for a female character she's promiscuous she's uh she's tough she's strong she's a good swordsman she's you know um eowen yes eowen eowen yeah um i I like a redhead bro she is i mean and she's miranda Otto is a good actress um but uh i've never lorana was you know a good person kitty is a narcissist she is a narcissist in the truest sense of the word she only cares about herself that's the only she, the thing she ever cares about she's not capable of love she's um everybody's to be used you know uh, but tannis is one of those you have a dynamic when narcissists get in relationships sometimes where that soft-hearted person is somebody that they actually love like they're not capable of it until they meet that person But at the end they they love them at the same time. They they see their weakness and they and they are put off by it But at the same time, you know, it's a real it's a very strange Dynamic and that's the dynamic with kitty and tannis tannis is a good is a He's a, a fine fighter. He's a warrior and all that stuff but he's not He's not hard. He's not cruel and I would imagine she's usually attracted to, you know, very ambitious, hard, cruel men, you know. So um he takes her back. She's under the impression now of course that uh Tannis is uh in the Dragon Army because he's lied and told her a story. Um he takes her back to the inn or she takes him back to the inn to an inn she's staying in Flotsam. Um uh, goes past the innkeeper, um, you know, whatever. Quote, Kit glanced around. Finding everything satisfactory, she casually tossed the dragon helm on a table and began pulling off her gloves. Sitting down in a chair, she raised her leg with sensual sensual and del- del- deliberate abandon. My boots, she said to Tannis, smiling. Swallowing, giving her a weak smile in return, Tannis gripped her leg in his hands. This had been an old game of theirs, him taking off her boots. That's kind of telling isn't it i mean isn't it that it's kind of a subservient thing like she she sets the tone in this relationship you know and she controls him um but back to it quote and it had always led to tennis Tried to keep himself from thinking about that um they begin to talk about what's going on you know the dragon arm and everything um and then uh, Kitty R actually asked about the old companions um, not that she ever cared about any of me even, even her brothers um, quote it's so good to see you Kit said kneeling before him and tugging at his boot I'm sorry I missed the reunion and solace how is everyone how is Sturm probably fighting with the knights I suppose I'm not surprised you two separated that was one friendship I, ne- I never could understand she couldn't understand it because of these two people who you know felt affection and loyalty to each other Kittyara talked on, but Tana ceased to listen. If you guys can't tell by it, I don't care for her. <laughs> I really don't care for her. I like her character. She's a very good character, but I, if I met her as a person, I would not like her. Yeah, You don't need to like every character. Well, I mean, but them. she's not – actually, she's set up not to be liked. I mean, she's – but she's an anti-hero type. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people – I mean, I like her in as much as she's a compelling character, but I don't. I wouldn't like her as a person. Kittyara talked on, but Tans ceased to listen. He could only look at her. He had forgotten how lovely she was, how sensual, how inviting. Desperately, he concentrated on his own danger. But he all he could think of were nights spent, of, nights of bliss spent with Kittyara. At that moment, Kit, Kit looked up into his eyes, caught and held by the passion she saw in them. Sheila's boots slipped from her hands involuntarily. Tanz reached out and drew her near. Kittyara slid her hand, her hand around his neck and pressed her lips against his. At her touch, the desires and longings that had tormented Tanz for five years surged through his body. Her fragrance, warm and womanly, mingled with the smell of leather and steel. Her kiss was like flame; the pain was unbearable. Tannis knew only one way to end it. When the innkeeper knocked on the door, he received no answer. Shaking his head in admiration, this was the third man in as many days. He set the war, he set the wine upon the floor and left. Um, there, you know, then they get to an exchange about what what happened in, uh, in Tarsus. And she knew it was Tannis and them, and she was, you know, of course she was the one who chased him to Sylvanasti, all that stuff. Um they get a more discussion about the companions and all that stuff. And then she has she says something here that's very insulting. Like um again, narcissists, the way they act, you know, they, they love they they love the person that they're with, but they just they have contempt for them in a lot of ways. Quote, I like the beard, she said, stroking his face. It hides those weak, elvish features. How did you get into the army? That's a shitty thing to say. Um, Even I'm a little bit miffed about that. I mean, well, she's just a bitch. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, then she starts telling about the green gemstone man. That's the Barum guy. And Tannis lets slip that he's seen him and she freaks. She's like, we can find him. You know, like she's this path to power for her, of course. um Tannis is trying to haw and trying to not to tell her things. He's he doesn't he's not trying to betray his friends, but he loves her and he's You know, he's kind of in a pickle. He's in quite the pickle um and Kittyara goes on. "Quote: Just think," Kittyara whispered her to his ear, her hot, her breath hot and moist against his skin. If we found him, you and I, we would have all of Kryn at our feet. The dark queen, the dark queen, would reward us beyond anything we ever dreamed. You and I, together, always, Tannis. Let's go now. Her words echoed in his mind. The two of them together, forever, ending the war, ruling Kryn. No, he thought, feeling his throat constrict. This is madness, insanity. My people, my friends. Yet, haven't I done enough? What do I owe any of them? Humans or elves? Nothing. They are the ones who have hurt me, derided me all these years. A cast out. Really feeling sorry for yourself here, Tannis? Why well, think about them? It's me. It's time I thought about me for a change. This is the woman I've dreamed of for so long, and she can be mine, Kittyara. So beautiful, so desirable. No, Tannis said harshly. Then no, he said more gently. Reaching out his hand, he pulled her back near him. Tomorrow will do. If it was him, he isn't going anywhere. I know kitty are smiling with a sigh lay back down Tannis bending over her kissed her passionately far away you could hear the waves of the blood sea of istar crashing on the shore um he sounded like
1: a uh, late 90s raven there for a second what about me what about raven <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: um then we are back at the high Claris tower um, that's the tower, you know, the Tower of Palanthas. Uh, you know, basically, it's not the Tower of Palanthas; it's High Highclere's Tower. That's the um, that's the place where the the small contingent of uh, Salamnic Knights under the conter- uh, command of Storm Brightblade and um, you know Derek Crownguard um, are laid in, uh, preparing essentially for a siege. Um, but you know, they have dragons, so how much of a siege can it be? Um the uh let's see Quote One thing stood between the Dragon High Lord and Victory in Salamnia. By the way, that Dragon High Lord is Kitiara. That thing, as a High Lord often referred to it, was the Tower of the High Clarist. Built by Vinus Salamnus, fighter founder of the Knights in the in the only past of the snow cloud shrouding vengard Mountains. The tower protected Protected this capital city of Salamnia, and the harbor known as the Gates of Pal- Paladine. Let the tower fall, and this would belong to the dragon armies. It was a soft city, a city of wealth and beauty, a city that turned its back upon the world to gaze with a man admiring eyes into its own mirror. Um, there's a discussion between the uh, d- different commanders. Kitty Ara isn't there. She's back giving Tannis the what for. So, um, they're discussing green green gemstone man all that stuff i never liked the green gemstone i'm gonna be honest i never liked the green gemstone man storyline it was never my favorite like um that's why i didn't commit so much of it to memory because i was basically scanning through it most of the time to get to this parts i liked but as i'm doing this now to you know give a thorough discussion of the book and you know all the things about it all the different plot points all the things i like about this world and stuff it has to be discussed so um it's very important they find him it actually is at the end kind of a cool story but again it's uh you know the um um how it's it skips around here a little bit um the inside the tower the the highclere's tower there's a dissension between the knights of course um Quote, the young knights under Sturm Whiteblade's command had grown to revere the disgraced leader during the hard months that followed their departure from Sancrist. Although melancholy and often aloof, Sturm's honesty and integrity won him the, his men's respect and admiration. It was a costly victory, causing Sturm a great deal of suffering at Derrick's hands. A less noble man might have turned a blind eye to Derrick's political maneuvers or at least kept his mouth shut as did Lord Alfred. But Sturm spoke out against Derek constantly, even though he knew it worked his own cause with a powerful knight. I I admire the shit out of Sturm. I mean, he is a, he's a very awesome character. Like he started out, like I said, as this stiff, humorless, melancholy guy. And then they've really worked him into being maybe the most three dimensional character in the whole thing besides Tannis, you know? Um, But, uh, You know, it's, uh, I've always really liked him. Not always, but I liked him after they really developed him, let me say. Quote It was Derek who completely alienated the people of the plant of Palanthus. Already distrustful, filled with old hatreds and bitterness, the people of the beautiful, quiet city were alarmed and angered by Derek's threats when they refused to go, refused to allow the knights to garrison the city. It was only through Knight Stern's patient negotiation that the knights received any supplies at all. Yeah, the city has to supply them. Um, then um we have a nice part where uh now Sturm has been cleared of the charges, his cowardice, whatever. He's never a coward, but disobeying direct orders essentially. So he can be properly knighted. Um I like the uh, I like the uh the ceremony here, quote the trumpet call sounded twice more i mean it you know i'm kind of jumping in the middle here the silence fell upon the assembled knights stern Brightblade, dressed in long white robes stepped out of the chapel of the high clarist where he had spent the night in solemn prayer and meditation as prescribed by the measure accompanying was an unusual guard of honor behind, beside stern walked an elven woman her beauty shining in the bleakness of the uh, of the day like the sun dawning in the spring behind her walked an old dwarf The sunlight bright on his white hair and beard. Next to the dwarf came a kender dressed in bright blue leggings. Um, I love that. The fact that his honor guard are his actual friends, not knights he picked out because it would have been more proper. You know, he loves his friends and doesn't give a fuck who, you know, who knows it and who disapproves. They obviously would have uh, disapproved of Lorana would have gotten in because she was royalty. Flint, the knights respect the not the dwarves' battle prowess. Like dwarves are really good fighters. They're extremely strong. You know, they're tough. Um, you know, and they're also, you know, a good race. There are evil dwarves. We will get into that later. That's actually kind of a really uh fascinating. There's a book, as I've said before, that that goes along with this book kind of called Stormblade. Um it's one of the finest Dragonland books ever written um and i've got an original copy and it's worth a lot of money really i mean not a lot of money but a lot of money for being a paperback you know because you just can't find it anymore um but anyway um then they uh they come to stand before lord alfred i guess he's the the hkic the head knight in charge um hey. i didn't mean that to be i mean it wasn't meant to be um quote stern bright blade lord out Alfred declared solemnly, opening a sheet of paper. The Knights Council, on hearing testimony given by Lorana. I'm not going to try to pronounce her elven name because it's impossible, of the royal family of Quallenasti, and further testimony testimony by Flint Fireforge, Hill Dwarf of Solace Township, has granted you vindication from the charges brought against you. In recognition of your braids, your deeds of bravery and courage, as related by these witnesses, you hereby declared a Knight of Salamnia. Lord Alfred's voice is. Lord Alfred's voice softened as he looked down upon the knight. Tears streamed unchecked down Storm's gaunt cheeks. You have spent the night in prayer, Storm Bright Blade, Alfred said quietly. Do you consider yourself worried with this great honor? No, my Lord Storm Storm answered, according to ancient ritual. But I most humbly accept it, and vow that I shall devote my life to making myself worthy. The knight lifted his eyes to the sky. With Paladine's help he said softly, I shall do so. Um Flint looks over Lorana and says, I wish Tannis were here. You know, they all love Tannis. I mean, and him and Stern were like best friends, basically. So, um, you know, it would have been a beautiful, it would have been a beautiful thing for Tannis to witness. Um, Then we get a description of Lorana. I always love descriptions of Lorana. I mean, she definitely wouldn't be my type, but she's still beautiful. Um, I'm more in the Tika camp. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Quote, she, took, she stood tall and straight, wearing armor specially made for her in Polanthus at Lord Gunther's command. Her honey-colored hair streamed from beneath the silver helm. Intricate gold designs on her bless, breastplate, her soft black leather skirts slid up the side to allow freedom of movement, brushed the tips of her boots. Her face was pale and grim for the situation in Polanthus and the tower set was dark and seeming without hope. Um, her trip to get to Planthus was rough. Um, we get a description. Quote, the journey from Planthus to, to the tower was nightmarish. Lorana started out accompanying two wagons filled with meager supplies and the precious dragon lances. The first wagon bogged down in snow only a few miles outside of the city. Its contents were redistributed between the few knights riding an escort, Lorana and her party, and the second wagon. It too foundered. Time and time and, time and again, they dug it out of the snowdrifts until finally it was mired fast. Loading the food and the lances onto their horses, the knights and, and Lorana, Flint, and Taz walked the rest of the way. theirs was the last group to make it through. After the storm of last night, Lorana knew, as did everyone in the tower, no more supplies would be coming. The road to Plantis was now impassable. Even by strictest rationing, the knight and their footmen had enough food for only a few days. The dragon army seemed to prepare to seem prepared to wait for the rest of the winter. You know, as you know, anybody who studies uh, medieval times or even reads a lot of fantasy, you know, siege is the big thing. Who can wait who out? Um, it's been a. It's even in the more high fantasy, you get. Uh, the Lannisters have, uh, uh, you know, bar- of, uh, barricaded river runs. They can't get out. And that's where we get that. Uh, when we discuss that, one of my favorite things is the parlay, the discussion between the Blackfish and Jamie Lannister. And uh, they, I, as much as I love the show, they didn't do it, do it justice. He, When he takes off his glove and slaps Jamie Lannister across the face. And says, "I'll kill you right here." You that could know? have been a whole season, <laughs> yeah. huh? That could have been a whole season. Yeah, oh sure. man, it was. Uh, the blackfish is one of my favorite characters. Um, then we get, uh, we're still. This, it stays with this, virtually to the end of the book. Um, quote: "Sturm and Flint walked the battlements the night of Sturm's night- nighting, reminiscing. A well of pure sil- silver, shining like a jewel within the heart of the Dragon Mountain." Flint said, "All." Uh, sometimes they they have typos that they actually it says all his voice instead of in so I was going to say all his voice and it was from that silver theros forged the dragon lances I should have liked above all things to seen him humus tomb storm said quietly staring out at the campfires on the horizon he stopped resting his hand on the ancient stone wall torchlight from a nearby window shone on his thin face you will said the dwarf when this is finished we'll go back Taz drew a map not that's likely to be any good. <laughs> As he grumbled on about Taz, Flint studied his other old friend with concern. The knight's face was grave and melancholy, not unusual for Sturm. But there was something new, a calmness about him that came not from serenity, but from despair. Um, Flint does not approve of their plan for what they're doing he thinks palanthus is a better place he's probably right the dwarves are extremely military-minded like especially when it comes to sieges and uh this soundness of walls and stuff like that he thinks the high claris tower is a disaster and we'll get into it later uh one of my favorite things is the dwarves have one entrance and one exit and that's all they got because that's all you have to guard and if you lose that you lost anyway so i have a back door you know, very tough-minded people. You know, it's like had Thurbarden decided to close their gates and weather this whole storm, they probably would have succeeded. Um, but, you know, they are good people. So even though they're very insular like the elves, they felt, they feel a responsibility to help Kryn or help Anselon. So, um, uh, you know, the dwarves are very interesting race in kryn um you have just the basic you know as i said Ancelon's usually just a basic uh tolkien-esque uh version of these things but in talidus especially you have different kinds of dwarves you have the scorned who you know they live underground now they do not come out like ever and so they've adapted to being completely subterranean so uh their eyes are smaller they're more sensitive to light but they're bigger and i mean I know, it's weird and then you have the scorned who are basically what they've done is they take mountain dwarves and hill dwarves which are you know two separate varieties and they've made them extreme like the scorned are you know live in you know giant underground cities where they never leave and then the uh the sundered dwarves i think it's uh the fianowar is what they're called are hill dwarves but they live in a wrecked place with terrible water you know it's just they're really they're dirty and stuff because they can't really wash their clothes and they are you know but it's made them really tough like they are really good warriors but they have become you know anyway i, I know i go into talentist but it's something that fascinates me um and if anybody ever gets a chance to read that the source books for them are great like they're just fascinating fascinating uh fantasy stuff um but flint of course, makes no secret about his feelings quote we should all leave you ask me the dwarf snap pull the knights back to Polanthus. we can hold that town against even dragons i'll wager its buildings are good solid stone not like this place the dwarf glanced around the human built tower with a scorn <laughs> He doesn't like when humans build things. this could be defended. Sturm shook his head. The people won't allow it. They care only for their beautiful city. As long as they think can be can be saved, they won't fight. Now we must make our stand here. You don't have a chance, Flint argued. Yes we do, replied. If we can just hold out until the supply lines can be firmly established. We've got enough manpower. That's why the dragon armies haven't attacked. There's another way, came a voice. Sturm and Flint turned. The torchlight fell on a gaunt face, and Sturm's expression hardened. What way is that, Lord Derek, Sturm asked with deliberate politeness. You and Gunther believe you have defeated me, Derek said, ignoring the question. His voice was soft and shaken with hatred as he stared at Sturm. But you haven't. By one heroic act, I will have the knights in my palm. Derek held out his mailed hand, the armor flashing in the sunlight. And you and Gunther will be finished, slowly clenched his fist. Um, they almost get into a fight here. Um... I um I'm trying to I'm trying to get the gist of it here. Um Sturm he almost grabs Sturm, they almost get it, they almost pull their swords out. Um and then Sturm just asks him, tells him say what you have to say. You know. Quote, You're finished, Bright Blade. Tomorrow I'm leading the knights onto the field. No more skulking in this miserable rock prison. By tomorrow night my, my name will be legend. Flint looked up at Sturm in alarm. The knight's face had drained of blood. Derek Sturm said softly, You're mad. There are thousands of them. They'll cut you to ribbons. Yeah, that's what you'd like to see, isn't it, Derek? Sneer. Be ready at dawn, brightly um, He's gone insane. Essentially, his grasp on sanity was never quite sound to begin with. Um, I like though. I don't. It's not something that I like, but it's interesting that they introduced him and he was a rebel knight that was helping. You know, this Alana Starbreeze and all that stuff his development went another way like they were he was originally gonna be like i think he was gonna make him a rebel knight who was you know maybe a maverick in the order and stuff like that but then they i think they saw that well we can make this a, a a embodiment of what the knighthood has gone bad you know where it's gone bad and sturm is an embodiment of what a knight actually should be even though he's he wasn't technically a knight at that point it's a it's a good way to go um I felt it was the proper decision to make. And again, that's only my opinion, but that's what I feel like happened. Um, And then we cut to uh, Tasselhoff, and he's bored, so you know what's going to happen. Quote, That night, Tasselhoff, cold, hungry, and bored, decided the best way to take his mind off his stomach was to explore his surroundings. There are plenty of places to hide things here, thought Tass. This is one of the strangest buildings I've ever seen. The Tower of the High Clara sat solidly against the west side of the Westgate Pass, the only canyon pass that... Across the Habakkuk range of mountains separating eastern Salamnia from Pilanthus. As the Dragon High Lord knew, anyone trying to reach Planthus other than by this route would have to travel hundreds of miles around the mountains or through the desert or by sea, and ships entering the gates of Paladine were easy targets for the gnomes, fire, fire throwing catapults. The High Claris Tower had been built during the Age of Might. Flint knew a lot about architecture of this period the dwarves having been instrumental in designing and building most of it but they had not built or designed this tower in fact flint who had who wondered who had figuring the person must have either been drunk or insane <laughs> an hour curtain wall of stone formed an octagon at the tower's base each point of the octagonal wall was surrounded, surrounded by a turret battlements ran along the top of the curtain wall between turrets An inner octagonal wall formed the base of a series of towers and buttresses that swept gracefully upward to the central tower itself. This was fairly standard design, but what puzzled the dwarf was a lack of internal defense points. Three great steel walls breached the outer wall instead of one door, as would seem most reasonable since three doors took an incredible number of men to defend. Each door opened to a narrow courtyard at the far end of which stood a portcullis, leading directly into a huge hallway. Each of these hallways met in the heart of the tower itself. Might as well invite the enemy inside for tea, the, the dwarf had grumbled. Stupidest way to build a fortress I ever saw. Um, it becomes apparent why they built it that way. Um, in normal circumstances, he would be completely right. Um, it is easier to guard one gate than it is to guard several. But uh, again, we'll see why. And Tasselhoff, this is the tower which Tasselhoff, is now, you know, taking his adventure. Quote, only shadows walked down here. No torches burned, no guard was posted posted. Broad steps led up to the steel portcullis. Taz padded up padded up the stairs toward the great yawning archway and peered eagerly through the bars. Nothing. He sighed. The darkness beyond was so intense he might have been staring into the abyss itself. Frustrated he pushed on the portcullis more out of habit than hope, for only Caraman or ten knights Caraman, strong as ten men, would have had the strength necessary to raise it to the kinder's astonishment the port- portless began to rise making the most god-awful screeching grabbing for it Taz dragged it slowly to a halt the kinder looked fearfully up at the battlements expecting to see entire garrison thundering down to capture him but apparently the knights were listening only to the growlings of their empty stomachs um, he wiggles between the spikes and goes you know what's, what's beyond the gate Quote, he found himself in a large wide hall nearly fifty feet across. He could see just a short distance. There were old torches on the wall, however. After a few jumps, Tannis reached Taz reached one and lit it from Flint's tinderbox. box he found in his pouch. <laughs> Did you hear that? He stole Flint's tinderbox. I can imagine Flint get real you know, finding that out and being pissed off. Um, now Kat, Taz could see the gigantic hall clearly. It ran straight ahead, right into the heart of the tower. Strange columns ranged along either side like jagged teeth. Peering behind one, he saw nothing but an alcove. The hall itself was empty. Disappointed, Taz continued walking down it, hoping to find something interesting. He came to a short porcalis already raised, much to his chagrin. Anything easy, anything easy is more trouble than it's worth, he was, was an old kinder saying. Taz walked beneath that porcalis into a second hallway, narrower than the first, only about 10 feet wide, but with the same strange tooth-like columns on either side. Why build a tower so easy to enter, Taz wondered. The outer wall was formidable, but once past that, five dwar- drunken dwarves could take this place. Taz peered up. And why so huge? The main hall was 30 feet high. Um, he comes to a door then that's locked Um, (laughs) again i love the kinder quote well at least there was something to keep him occupied and make him forget about his empty stomach climbing onto a stone bench taz stuck his torch into a wall sconce then began to fumble through his pouches he finally discovered the set of lockpicking devices that are kinder's birthright why insult the door's purpose by locking it is a favorite kinder expression um he finds something he finds something on a tripod uh and, and pulls us uh blows us dust off and they don't tell you what it is because it's a plot point um but we'll find out very shortly um now it's the next day and Derek is getting ready to lead his knights out and fight the dragon armies and uh storm's telling him he shouldn't go you know um quote but you'll be fighting draconian start storm warned they are not like goblins they are intelligent and skilled they have magic users among their ranks and their weapons are the finest in krim even in death they have the power to kill i believe we can deal with them bright blade derrick interrupted harshly and now i suggest you wake your men and tell them to make ready here we end here we get to the meat of it i'm not going storm said steadily and i'm not ordering my men to go either Derek paled with fury. For a minute, he could not speak. He was so angry. Even Lord Alfred appeared shocked. Sturm, Alfred began slowly. Do you know what you were doing? Yes, my lord, Sturm answered. We're the only thing standing between the dragon armies and Palanthas. We dare not leave this garrison unmanned. I'm keeping my command here. Disobeying a direct order, Derek said, breathing heavily. You are a witness, Lord Alfred. I'll have his head this time. He stalked out. Lord Alfred, his face grim, followed, leaving Sturm alone. In the end, Sturm had given his men a choice they could stay with him at no risk to themselves. They, since they were simply obeying orders of their commanding officer, they could accompany Derek. It was, he mentioned the same choice. Vinus Salamnus had given his men long ago when the Knights rebelled against the corrupt emperor of Urgoth. The men did not need to be run of this legend. They saw it as a sign. And was as, as with Salamnus, most of them chose to stay with the commander. They had come to respect and admire. I think that would have been better if none of them had decided to go. You know what I mean? Like, it's like one of those moments, so like on Glory, uh, the the Civil War movie about the black soldiers, where they told them in a, in a in a posting what would happen to them if they were caught and all that stuff, and and then they told them they could you know be discharged, uh, honorably and all that stuff, and then they wake up the next day and not a single man had deserted. You know, really powerful moment. Quote: Now they stood watching, their faces grim, as their friends prepared to ride out. It was the first open break in the long. In the long history of the knighthood, and the moment was grievous. Reconsider Sturm, Lord Alfred said as the knight helped him mount his horse. Lord Derrick is right. The dragon armies have not been trained, not like the knights. There's every probability we will rout them with barely a blow being struck. I pray that is true, my Lord Sturm said steadily. Alfred regarded him sadly. If it is true, brightblade, Derrick will see you tried and executed for this. There'll be nothing good, for the good can do to stop him. I would willing die, die that death, my lord, if I could fear, if I would stop what I fear will happen, Sturm replied um you know there's more discussion about it Alfred still stern's made his decision though much to the delight of he's mad but he's also delighted Derek is Derek crown guard quote according to the measure stern bright blade Derek man begin fo- formally i hereby charge you with a conspiracy and to the abyss with the measure stern snarled, his patience snapping what is the measure gotten us divided jealous crazed even when people Prefer to treat with the armies of the enemies. The measure has failed. A deathly hush settled over the knights in the courtyard, broken only by the restless pawing of a horse or the jingle of armor, as here and, there man, here and there a man shifted in his saddle. Pray for my death, stern bright blade, Derek said softly, or by the gods I'll slit your throat at your execution myself. Without another word, he wheeled his horse around and cantered to the head of the column. Um, Open the gates, quote, Derek raised his sword high in the air. Lifting his voice in the knight's salute to the enemy, he galloped forward. The knights behind him picked up his ringing challenge and rode forth onto the fields where, long ago, Huma had, Huma had ridden to glorious victory. The footmen marched, their footsteps beating a tattoo upon the stone pavement. For a moment, Lord Alfred seemed about to speak to Sturm and the young knights who stood watching, but he only shook his head and rode away. The knights' gates swung. Shut behind him. The heavy iron doors dropped down to lock them securely. The men in Storm's command ran to the battlements to watch. Storm stood silently in the center of the courtyard, his gaunt face expressionless. Um. Then we get uh, from the dragon armor's point of view a, a commander named Bakaris, who was one of uh, Kediar's companions. <laughs> um she could er predict this would happen she is an able battle commander and she's a uh, and she's a, a very good general so um, she saw this she understands the at least most of the Knights of Salamis. is uh, Islamic Knights uh, arrogance so she thought they would ride forth and, and you know, and break their forces they were gonna have a t- tougher time of it had this not happened, and she's delighted uh, or but is delighted she's not there at the moment and um, and then we get to, it's uh, the guys on the tower are watching, quote, I mean I mean the knights inside the tower are watching, quote, The sun climbed high in the sky. The knights stood upon the battlements of the tower, staring out across the plains until their eyes ached. All they could see was a great tide of black crawling figures swarming over the flea- fields, ready to engulf the slender spear of gleaming silver that advanced steadily to meet it. Then they meet and they hear, you know, the clash of arms and then uh, some fog... You know, obscures our view. I can't tell what's going on, but it's foregone collusion, isn't it? Um, ironically enough, it's a stupid decision, but a decision that was made also by uh, if you can remember, Jorah Mormont or uh, Lord Mormont when he led the Night's Watch out to attack the Wildlings who were beyond the Wall with hundreds of thousands of people, and he had a force of like two thousand men. And decided to, re- to ride out and meet him. Not a very intelligent thing, uh admirable, not intelligent. Um That's one of the only faults I had with the old guy. I really loved him. He was a great
1: character. Sometimes his eyes are just bigger than his
0: stomach. Man, he was he's an intimidating old man. He was in Braveheart. He he played a big the one where they they were trying to take the arrow out of him. <laughs> and they're like each guy has the torch or the the iron where they're going to cauterize the wound and the first one says here you hold it you, you do it I'll hold him down <laughs> the next one says here you do it I'll hold him down <laughs> and everybody wants to do it when they finally do it they let him go and he knocks the guy out that did it to him so they knew it was going to happen always, always one of the more funny moments of uh, Braveheart um, Sturm is trying to get Lorana. To go to uh, Polanthus. Uh, Sturm, Tannis, and I mean, uh, Lorana, Flint, and Taz. Uh, she's not having them. Quote, I'm staying here, Sturm, she said. After pausing to get her voice under control, she continued. I know what you're going to say, so listen to me first. You're going to need all the skilled fighters you can get. You know my worth. Sturm nodded. What she said was true. There were few in his command more accurate with a bow. She was a trained swordsman as well. She was battle-tested, something he couldn't say about many of the young knights in his command. So he nodded in agreement. He meant to send her away anyhow. I'm the only one trained to use the Dragonlance. Flint's been trained, Sturm interrupted quietly. Apparently he's just going to send Loran away, because you know, he's, she's a woman and that I, I, I didn't realize that. I read it earlier, but I, uh, now I realize why he's doing that. And uh, there we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it here in a second. Lorna fixed a dwarf with a penetrating stare caught between two pe- two people. He loved and admired Flint flush and clear his throat. That's true. He said, huskily. but I, I must admit, Sturm, that I, I am a bit short. Um, then talking, lorana says something about what would tannis do and that you know sturm reacts not so well to that quote damn it lorana sturm said, his face flushed live your own life you can't be tannis i can't be tannis he isn't here we've got to face that the night turned away suddenly he isn't here repeated harshly flint sighed, glancing sorrowfully at lorana no one noticed tasselhoff who said sat muzzled huddled miserably in a corner lorana put her arm around sturm I know I'm not the friend Tannis is to you, Sturm. I can never take his place, but I'll do my best to help you. That's what I meant. You don't have to treat me any differently from your knights. I know, Lorana. Sturm said, putting his arm around you, he held her close. I'm sorry I'm stabbed at you. Sturm sighed. And you know why I'm send you away. Tannis would never forgive me if anything happened to you. Yes, yes, he would, Lerana answered softly. He would understand. He told me once that there comes a time when you got to risk your life for something that means more than life itself. Remember, we were talking about that's the theme. What are you willing to die for? "'Don't you see, Sturm? "'If I fled to safety, leaving my friends behind, "'he, wouldn't, he would say he understood. "'But deep inside, he wouldn't. "'Because it's so far from what he would do himself. "'Besides,' she smiled. "'Even if there were no tennis in this world, "'I still cannot leave my friends.' "'Sturm looked into her eyes "'and, and saw that no words of his would make any difference. Silently, he held her close. "'His other arm went around Flint's shoulder "'and drew the dwarf near.'" That's when Tasselhoff bursts into tears and he reveals what he saw. Quote, Taz, what is it? Lauren asked, alarmed. It's all my fault. I broke one. Am I doomed to go around the world breaking these things? Taz wailed incoherently. Calm down, Sturm said, his voice stern. He gave the Kinder a shake. What are you talking about? I found another one, Taz blud- blud- blubbered, down below in a big empty chamber. Another what, you doorknob? Flint said in <laughs> exasperation. Another dragon orb, Taz wailed. There's a dragon orb in the bottom of the High Clare's Tower. Um is it uh ex machina yeah a little bit but you know it's a fantasy story so um it it turns out really well but you know not so well too um then predictably uh a horse comes riding out later i think it's later that um later at night and it is a commander from the dragon army and he has two corpses quote the rider who held the flaming torch was dressed in the shining armor of an officer in the dragon army he was blonde his features were cold handsome cold and cruel he led a second horse across across which were thrown two bodies one of them headless both blood both both bloody mutilated i brought back your officers the man said his, his voice harsh and blaring one is quite dead, as you can see. The other, I believe, still lives, or did when I started my journey. I hope he is still living so he can recount to you for you, what took place on, upon the field of battle today, if you could even call it a battle. Bathed in the glare of his own torch, the officer dismounted. He began to untie the bodies, using one hand to strip away the ropes, biting them to the saddle. Then he glanced up. Yes, you could kill me now. I'm a fine target even in this fog, but you won't, your knights of salamnia, his sarcasm was sharp, and your honor is life. You wouldn't shoot an unarmed man returning the bodies of your leaders. He gave the ropes a yank. The headless body slid to the ground. <clears throat> the officer dragged the other body off the saddle. He tossed the torch down in the snow next to the bodies. It sizzled, then went out, and the darkness swallowed him. You have a surfeit of honor out there on the field, he called. The knights could hear the leather creak, his armor clang as he ra- remounted his horse. I'll give you warning to surrender. When the sun rises, lower your flag. The dragon ho- holler will deal with you mercilessly. Suddenly there was the twang of a bow, the thunk of an arrow sticking, sticking into flesh, and the sound of startled swearing from below. The knights turned around to stare in astonishment at a lone figure standing on the wall, a bow in its hand. I'm not a knight, Lorana called out, lowering a bow. I'm Lorana daughter of the quail and Esty. we have we also have our own have our own code of honor and I'm sure you know I can see you quite well in the darkness I could have killed you as it is I believe you will have some difficulty using that arm for a long time in fact you may never hold a sword again take that answer to your high lord storm said harshly we will lie in cold death before we lower our flag nice to find Stan fuck yeah dude um, they retrieved the bodies one of them is Lord Alfred the one's been beheaded the other one is Derek Crownguard, and he is still alive Sturm rose and walked over to where Derek lay on the cold stone. The Lord's face was white, his eyes white and glittering feverishly. Blood caked his lips, his skin was clammy. One of the young knights supporting him held a cup of water to his lips, but Derek could not drink. Sick with horror, Sturm saw Derek's hand pressed over his stomach, where his life's blood was welling out, but not fast enough to end the agonizing pain. Giving a ghastly smile, Derek clutched Sturm's Derek clutched Sturm's arm with a bloody hand. Victory, he croaked. They ran before us and we pursued. It was a glorious, glorious, and I'll be grandmaster. He choked and blood sprang from his mouth as he fell back in the arms of the young knight who looked up but Sturm, his youthful face hopeful. Do you suppose he's right, sir? Maybe that was a ruse. His voice died of the sight of Sturm's grim face. He looked back at Derek with pity. He's mad, isn't he, sir? He's dying, bravely, like a true knight, Storm said victory Derek whispered, then his eyes fixed in his head and he gazed slightly slightly into the fog. Um, Lorana and Taz have gone down to look at the dragon, Dragonlands, and they don't, they, neither one of them are Iceland and they don't know what to do. Um, because nobody can You know, it's the language of magic that, you know, the basically the instructions that happen with the uh, with the Dragonlance. I mean, with the Dragon Orb. But then Taz remembers and reveals that he has uh, the glasses of trusing, as we all remember, the ones he borrowed from Thurbardin. And uh, Lorana basically tells him that they don't have a choice. Um, She asks him if he can read the orb. Quote, I can try Taz Hedge, but Lorana, Sturm said there probably wouldn't be any dragons. Why should we even risk bothering with the orb? Fizban said only the most powerful magic users dared use it. Listen to me, Taz Hoffbur said, Burfoot, Lorana said softly, kneeling down beside the kinder and staring straight in the eye. If they bring even one dragon here, we're finished. That's why they gave us the time to surrender instead of just storming the place. They're using the extra time to bring in dragons. We must take this chance. A dark, pi- a dark path and a light path. Tasselhoff remembered Fezban's words and hung his head. Death of those you love, but you have the courage. Slowly, Taz reached into the pocket of his fleecy vest, pulled out the glasses, and fit the wire frames over his pointed ears. Um, it's, uh, you know, things are getting pretty dire. Quote The fog lifted with the coming of morning. The day, bright and, the day dawned bright and clear, so clear that Sturm walking the battlements could see the snow-covered grasslands of his birthplace near Vanguard Keep, lands now completely controlled by the dragon armies. The sun's first ray, ray stuck the flag of the knights. Kingfisher beneath a golden crown, holding a sword decorated with a rose in its claws. The golden emblem glittered in the morning light. Then Sturm heard the harsh, blaring horns. The dragon armies marched upon the tower at dawn. Um, they're all preparing to die. Can we... Off. Yeah. One. Um, excuse me. Sorry for that. Uh, the Knights and everyone inside are preparing for death. Basically, uh, they all know they're not going to make it. Quote, Flint peered out from a crack in the wall. At least I'll die on dry land. The dwarf muttered. Sturm smiled slightly, stroking his mustaches. His eyes went to the east. As he thought about dying, he looked upon the land where he had been born, a home he had barely known, a father he barely remembered, a country that had been driven—a country, driven country that had driven his family into exile. He was about to give his life to defend that country. Why? Why didn't he just leave and go back to Polanthus? All of his life, he had followed the code and the measure—the code, Oth Othmythus. My honor is my life. The code was all that he had left. The measure was gone. It had failed. Rigid, inflexibly, inflexible, the measure encased the knights in steel heavier than their armor. The knights, isolated, fighting to survive, had clung to the measure in despair, not really that, realizing it was an anchor weighing them down. Why was I different, Storm wondered, but he knew that answer. Even, I love this part. This is one of my favorite parts of this book and maybe the entire series, just a, this simple statement. But he knew the answer even as he listened to the dwarf grumble. And because of, it was because of the dwarf, the kinder, the mage, the half elf, they had taught him to see the world through other eyes slanted eyes, smaller eyes, even hourglass eyes. Knights like Derek saw the world in stark black and white. Sturm had seen the world in all its radiant colors, and all its bleak grayness. That is beautiful. That is one of the most beautiful sentiments I've ever read in anything. Um, we don't get a description of the first part of the battle. Um, it doesn't go well. Half the knights are dead. Um, Quote, by nightfall, the flag still flew. The tower stood, but half its defenders were dead. So, um, you know, it's not looking good. Quote, Stern ba- paced the battlements, his body aching with weariness. And every time he tried to rest, taut muscles twitched and danced, his brain seemed on fire. And so he was driven to again, to pace again, back and forth, back and forth with slow, measured tread. He could not know that his steady pace drove the day's horrors from the thoughts of the young knights who listened. Knights in the courtyard, lying out the bodies of friends and comrades, thinking that tomorrow somehow someone might be doing this for them, heard Sturm's steady pacing and felt their fears for tomorrow eased. The ringing sound of the knight's footfalls brought comfort to everyone, in fact, except to the knight himself. Sturm's thoughts were dark and tormented thoughts of defeat, thoughts of dying nobly without honor. Tortured memories of the dream seeing his body hacked and mutilated by the foul creatures be beyond this that dream has haunted him ever since he this, he's coming to a moment of truth that that thing that happened in the dream was his ultimate fear and he's going to be faced with it not of death he's not afraid to die really we're all afraid to die and Sturm is really no different but he's he's afraid to die dishonorably um Quote, "'Would the dream come true?' he wondered, shivering. "'Would he falter at the end, unable to conquer fear? "'Would the co- code fail him, as had the measure? "'Step, step, step, step. "'Stop this term,' told himself angrily. "'You'll be as soon be as mad as poor Derek.' Spinning abruptly on his heel to break his stride, he, "'the knight turned to find Lorana behind him. "'His eyes met hers, and black thoughts were brightened by her light. "'As long as such peace and beauty as hers exists in this world, "'there was hope.' "'He smiled at her, and she smiled back, "'a strained smile, but erased lines of fatigue and worry in her face.' They're they're having a discussion about you know they're basically you know it's Flint Taz, Taz Sturm um, and Lorano. Um, uh, this is a quote. I've never been at a siege before. Sturm had heard Taz confide to Flint just seconds before the horse battle axe swept off of goblin's head. You know we're all going to die. Flint growled, wiping black blood from his axe blade. That's what you said when we faced the black dragon, and Zach Saroth has replied. Then you said the same thing in Thurbarden, and then there was the boat. This time we're going to die, Flint roared in rage, if I have to kill you myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> um I love that, that. But anyway, um but they're all settling down. Lorano is, you know, come to talk to him. And we have a very touching part, but very troubling quote. Uh Qu- quote, then I'm staying, Lorana said simply. Drawing the blanket up uh, more closely around her, she closed her eyes. I can't sleep, she whispered. But within a few moments, her breathing came soft and regular as a slumbering kinder. Sturm shook his head, swallowing a choking thickness in his throat. His glance gl- met Flint's. The dwarf sighed and went back to his carving. Neither spoke, but both, both men thinking the same thing. Their deaths would be bad if the draconians overran the tower. Lorana's death would be a thing of nightmares. They're really, they love her. And they don't, you know, Then the dragon armies like pull back for a minute. Everybody thinks it's a good thing, but it isn't. There's now dragons approaching three, three of them approaching the tower. One would be too much for them to handle. And now there's three. Um. Then the dragon orb, that's like their last chance. So Taz and Lorana are going to run down and, and, um, Lorana says she knows how to use it. Um, But they have to have time. The dragons are on their way now. So, uh, Sturm says he'll give them time. And it's not a good thing. Quote, Tasselhoff giving Lorana a last troubled glance, jumped down from the rock where where he and the dwarf had been standing. Flint came over Came after him more slowly, his face somber and thoughtful. Reaching ground, he walked up to he walked up to Sturm. "Must you?" Flint asked Sturm silently as their as their eyes met. Sturm nodded once, gliding, at, glancing at run He smiled sadly. "I'll tell her," he said softly. "Take care of the Kinder. Goodbye, my friend." Flint swallowed, shaking his old head. Then his face a mask of sorrow. The door. The dwarf blushed, his gnarled hand across his eye, and gave Taz a shove in the back. "Get moving!" The door snapped. That's a, to hide his sorrow. And then their discussion, the last discussion between Lorana and Sturm. Quote Lorana's face glowed. You come too, Sturm, she said, tugging him like a child eager to show a parent a new toy. I'll explain this to the men if you want. Then you can give give the orders and arrange the battle disposition. You're in command, Lorana, Sturm said. What? Lorana stopped, fear replacing their hope in her heart so suddenly that pain made her gasp. You said you needed time, Sturm said, adjusting his sword belt, avoiding her eyes. You're right. You must get the men in position. You must have time to use the orb. I will gain you that time. He picked up a bow and a quiver of arrows. No, Sturm, Lorana shivered with terror. You can't mean this. I can't command. I need you. Sturm, don't do this to yourself. Her voice died to a whisper. Don't do this to me. You can command, Lorana, Sturm said, taking her head in his hands. Leaning forward, he kissed her gently. Farewell of mate, he said softly. Your light will shine in this world. It is time for mine to darken. Don't grieve, dear one. Don't cry. He held her close. The forest master said to us in darkened wood that we should not mourn those who have fulfilled their destiny. Mine's fulfilled. Now her, Lorana. You'll need every second. She offers him a dragon lance, but he doesn't know how to use it. Quote, Sturm shook his head, his hand on the antique sword of his father. I don't know how to use it. Goodbye, Lorana. Tell Tannis. He stopped. Then he sighed. No, he said with a slight smile. He will know what's in my heart. Sturm. Larana's t- tears choked her in the silence. She could only stare at him in mute appeal. Go, he said. He said. She stumbles down into the tower. Um. This is one of the pivotal moments of the entire series, and it's staggeringly well written. I mean, it's just uh, This is where they, Weiss and Hickman, have really risen, risen to the occasion of something. Quote. The cold and brittle sun stained the sky blood red, deepening into the velvet blue blackness of receding night. The tower stood in shadow still, though the same sun's rays sparkled off the golden threads in the fluttering flag. Sturm reached the top of the wall. The tower soared above him. The parapet Sturm stood upon extended a hundred feet more to his left. Its stone surface was smooth, providing no shelter, no cover. Looking east, Sturm saw the dragons. They were blue dragons, and on the back of the this is, and forgive me guys, but this is a long passage, but it has to all be read, uh, because this is a moment that deserves it. They were blue dragons, on the back of the lead dragon in the formation set a dragon, high lord, the blue-black dragon-scale armor gleaming in the sunlight. He could see the hideous horned mask, the cape, the black cape floating behind. Two other blue dragons with riders followed the dragon, high lord. Sturm gave them a brief, perf- perfunctory glance. They did not concern him. His battle was with the leader, the high lord. The knight looked into the courtyard far below him. Sunlight was just climbing the walls. Storm saw it flicker red off the tips of the silver dragon lances the man held now in his hand. He saw it burn on Lorana's golden hair. He saw the men look up at him, grasping his sword. He raised it into the air. Sunlight flashed from the ornately carved blade. Smiling up at him, though she, she could barely see him through her tears, Lorana raised the dragon lance into the air in answer, in goodbye. Comforted by a silent storm turned back to face his enemy walking to the shadow of the wall he seemed a small figure poised halfway between land and sky the dragons could fly past him or circle around him but that wasn't what he wanted they must see him as a threat they must take time to fight him sheathing his sword storm fit an arrow, an arrow to his bow and took careful aim at the lead dragon patiently he waited holding his breath i cannot waste this he thought wait wait the dragon was in rage storm's arrow sped through the morning brilliance his aim was true the arrow struck the blue dragon in the neck. It did little damage, bouncing off the dragon's blue scales, but the dragon reared its head in pain and in irritation, slowing its flight. Quickly, Sturm fired again, this time at the dragon flying directly above the leader. The arrow tore it into a wing, and the dragon shrie- shrieked in rage. Sturm fired once more. This time, the lead dragon's rider steered it clear, but the knight had accomplished what he set out to do, capture their attention, prove he was a threat, force them to fight him. He could hear the sound of running footsteps in the courtyard and the shrill squeak of the winches raising the portcullises. Now Sturm could see the dragon Highlord rise to his feet in the saddle. Built like a chariot, the saddle could accommodate its rider in a standing position for, for battle. The Highlord carried his spear in his gloved hand. Sturm dropped his bow. Picking up his shield and drawing his sword, He he stood upon the wall, watching as the dragon flew closer and closer, its red eyes flaring, its white teeth gleaming quote this is you know there's a little bit more between this but this is the you know the the part that i've highlighted quote raising his sword in the air he gave the knight's salute to an enemy to his surprise it was returned with grave dignity by the dragon lord then the dragon dove its jaws open prepared to slash the knight with his razor sharp teeth Stung, Sturm swung his sword in a vicious arc forcing the dragon to rear its head back or risk decapitation Sturm hoped to, to disrupt its flight but the dragon's wings creature's wings held it steady its rider guiding with sure hand while holding a gleaming tip spear in the other Sturm faced east Half-blinded by the sun's brilliant storm, saw the dragon as a thing of blackness. He saw the creature dip in its flight, diving below the level of the wall. He realized the blue was going to come up from underneath, giving its rider the room to attack. The other two dragons held back, watching, waiting to see if their lord required help finishing this insolent night. For a moment, the sun-drenched sky was empty. Then the, then the dragon burst up over the edge of the wall, its horrifying screams splitting Sturm's eardrums, filling his head with pain. The breath from his gaping, gaping mouth gagged him. He staggered dizzily, but he managed to keep his feet as he slashed out with his sword. The ancient blade struck the left the dragon's no, left nostril. Black blood spurted into the air. The dragon roared in fury. But the blow was costly. Sturm had no time to recover. The dragon holler raised the spear, its tip flaming in the sun, Leaning leaning down he thrust it deep, piercing through armor, flesh and bone. Sturm's son shattered. That's a pretty powerful moment um and believe me it's not one of those things where there's some you know thing that's going to happen that stopped that from happening it's it it has happened then lorana uh we see see things from her point of view quote the courtyard was empty after the night's departure lorana knew she had she should hurry Already she should be with Taz, preparing herself to use the dragon horn, but Lorana could not leave that gleaming, solitary figure standing alone, waiting upon the wall. Then, silhouetted in the rising sun, she saw the dragons. Sword and spear flashed in the brilliant sunlight. Lorana's world stopped turning. Time slowed to a dream. The sword drew drew blood. The dragon screamed. The spear held poise for an eternity. The sun stood still. The spear struck. A glittering object fell slowly from the top of the wall into the courtyard. The object was Sturm's sword dropped from his lifeless hand. And it was, to Lorana, the only movement in a static world. The knight's body stood still, impaled upon the spear of the dragon Highlord. The dragon hovered above, its wings poised. Nothing moved. Everything held perfectly still. Then the Highlord jerked the spear free and Sturm's body crumpled where he stood, a dark mass against the sun. The dragon roared in an outrage and a bolt of lightning streaked from the blue's blood froth mouth and struck the Highclerus Tower. With a booming explosion, the, burst stone, the stone burst apart. Flames flared, brighter than the sun. The other two dragons dove for the courtyard of Sturm's sword clattered to the pavement with a ringing sound. Time began. Then we get to a part that's... it's It's just too much to go into, but... Um, you know the dragons are attacking the tower. The, the knights are preparing themselves, and dragons are in the tower. Um, Lorana hurries down to uh, use the dragon orb. Um, he. Taz tells her to put her hand on the on the dragon orb, and she does. Like she's, you know, the, imagine all this shit going on, lightning striking the walls, shit crumbling, all this crazy shit going on, and he's trying to tell her to use the orb. It's a very cinematic moment. You know, it's one of those moments where all seems lost. You know, it's like the end of The Empire Strikes Back, basically. Um, quote: In agony, he watched her. Tess off, longing to help, yet knowing that he did not dare do anything. Lorana stood for long moments without moving, her hands upon the orb, her face slowly draining of all life. Her eyes stared stared deep into the spinning, swirling colors. The Kinder grew dizzy looking at it and turned away, feeling sick. There was another explosion outside. Dust drifted down from the ceiling. Tess stirred uneasily, but Lorana never moved. Her eyes closed. Her head bent forward. She clutched the orb. Orb. Her hands whitening from the pressure she exerted. Then she began to whimper and shake her head. No, she moaned. It seemed as if she were trying desperately to pull her hands away, but the orb held them fast. Taz wondered bleakly what he should do. He longed to run up and pull her away. He wished he had broken this orb. That there was nothing he could do now. He could only stand and watch helplessly. Rana's body gave a convulsive shudder. Tassar dropped to her knees. Her hands still. Fall holding fast to the orb. Then the Rana shook her head angrily, muttering muttering unfamiliar words in Elven, she fought to stand, using the orb to drag herself up. That would be a powerful cinematic moment with the right music and everything. Her hands turned white with the strain and sweat trickled down her face. She was exerting every ounce of strength she possessed. With agonizing slowness, Lorana stood. The orb flared a final time, the colors swirled together, becoming many colours and none. Then a bright, beaming, pure white light poured from the orb. Lorana stood tall and straight before it. Her face relaxed. She smiled, and then she collapsed unconscious to the floor. In the courtyard of the High Claris Tower, the dragons were systematically reducing the stone walls to rubble. The army was nearing the tower, draconians in the forefront, preparing to enter through the breach walls and kill anything left alive inside. The dragon Highlord circled above the chaos, his blue dragon's nostril black with dry blood. The High Lord supervised the destruction of the tower, always proceeding well when the bright daylight was pierced by a pure white light, beating out from the huge three huge gaping interways into the tower. Remember those three... Inexplicable entryways. The dragon riders glanced at the light beams, however, wondering casually what they pretended. Their dragons, however, reacted differently. Lifting their heads, their eyes lost all focus. The dragons heard the call. Captured by ancient mag- magic users, brought in control by an elf maiden, the essence of the dragons held within the orb did as it was bound to do when commanded. It sent forth its irresistible call, and the dragons had no choice but to answer that call and tried desperately to reach its source. Um. Now we see why Dragon Orb is there and why that terror was constructed like that, don't we? Um, it also has another effect, which uh, I was kind of, when I first read this, I kind of knew this was going to happen, but uh, it is still important. Quote, Some draconians fell to their knees, clutching their heads in agony. Others turned and fled, an unseen horror lurking in the tower. Still others dropped their weapons and ran wildly straight toward the tower. Within moments, an organized, well-planned attack had turned to a mass confusion as a thousand draconians dashed off, shrieking in a thousand directions. Seeing the major part of their force break and run, the goblins promptly fled the battlefield. Remember, goblins are cowards. While the humans stood bewildered amidst the chaos, waiting for orders that were not coming, Dragon Highlord's own mount was barely kept in control by the Highlord's powerful force of will, but there was no stopping the other two dragons or the madness of the army. The Highlord can only fuel an impotent fury, trying to decide what this white light was and where it came from, and if possible, try to eradicate it. Um, The dragons now fly. Two of these dragons are flying into the tower, like in these wide, huge hallways. Um, It's a trap. And once they get through, these gates close. Quote, Too late, the dragon realized she was trapped. She howled in such fury, the rock shuddered and cracked as she opened her mouth to blast the dragon orb with her lightning breath. Tasselhoff, trying frantically to rev- revive Lorana, found himself staring into two flaming eyes. He saw the dragon's jaws part. He heard the dragon sucking her breath. Lightning crackled from the dragon's throat, the concussion knocking her flat. Rock exploded into the room, and the dragon... Orb shuddered on the stand, Taz lay on the floor stunned by the blast. He could not move, did not even want to move, in fact. He just lay there, waiting for the next bolt, which he knew would kill Arana, if she wasn't already dead and him too. At this point he didn't he really didn't much care. But the blast never came. The mechanism finally activated. The double steel door slammed shut in front of the dragon's snout, sealing the, the creature's head inside the small room. At first, it was deathly silent. Then the most horrible scream imaginable reverberated through the chamber. It was high-pitched, shrill, wailing, bubbling in agony, as the knights lunged out of their hiding places behind the tooth-like pillars and drove the silver dragon lances into the blue writhing body of the trapped dragon. Here we get a really... another illustration of how soft-hearted and kind of the uh, tassel is quote taz covered his ears with his hands trying to block out the awful sound over and over he pictured the terrible destruction he'd seen the dragon dragons wreak on towns the innocent people they had slaughtered the dragon would have killed him too he knew killed him without mercy and had probably already killed sturm he kept reminding himself of that trying to harden his heart but the kinder bared his head in his hands and wept then he felt a gentle hand touch him Taz whispered a voice. Lorana, he raised his head. Lorana, I'm sorry. I shouldn't care what they do, the dragon, but I can't stand it. Why, there must be killing? I can't stand it. Tears streaked his face. I know Lorana murmured. Vivid memories of Stern's death mingling with the shrieks of the dying dragon. Don't be ashamed, Taz. Be thankful you can feel pity and horror at the death of the, of the enemy. The day we cease to care, even for our enemies, is the day we have lost this battle. Um, they've won the battle now. I mean, it's tides has been turned. But it's a very um, bitter, bitter end. Um, She actually had, Lorana had actually emerged from the tunnel thinking that she was still going to have to fight. She didn't realize that that would do that to the Draconians too. So now she goes to see, uh, to find Sturm. Quote, Lorana knelt beside the knight Putting her hand out, she brushed back the windblown hair to look once more upon the face of her friend. For the first time since she had met him, Lorana saw peace in Storm's lifeless eyes. Lifting his cold hand, she pressed it to her cheek. Sleep, dear friend, she murmured. And let not your sleep be troubled by dragons. Then as she laid the cold white hand upon the shattered armor, she saw a bright sparkle in the blood-stained snow. She picked up an object so covered with blood she could not see what it was. Carefully, Lorana brushed the snow and blood away. It was a piece of jewelry. Lorana stared at it in astonishment. Uh, but then um, uh, the dragon high Lord has flown down and, and stepped on the dragon Lance, um, grab the dragon Lance, basically. And she pulls her sword out or she might, I think she might've picked up storms sword and she threatens the dragon high Lord. Um, And she says, quote, touch his body and you will die. Lorana said softly, your dragon will not be able to save you. The knight was my friend and I will not let his killer defile his body. I have no intention of defiling the body, the dragon the high lord said. Moving with elaborate slowness, the high lord reached down and gently shut the knight's eyes, which were fixed upon the sun he would see no more. The dragon the high lord stood up facing the elf elf maid who knelt in the snow and removed the booted foot from the dragon lance. You see, he was my friend too. I knew the moment I killed him. Lorana stared up at the, at the High Lord. I don't believe you should have said, she said tiredly. How could that be? Calmly, the Dragon High Lord removed the hideous dragon mask. I think you might have heard of me, Lorana. That is your name, isn't it? Lorana nodded dumbly, rising to her feet. The Dragon High Lord smiled, a charming, crooked smile. And my name is Kitiara. How did you know? A dream, Lorana murmured. Um, she mentions that she's seen Tannis. Kitiara didn't that of course, cuts Lorana to the, to the core. Kitty R's cold. She, she, she says she left him just two days ago in flots him. I'm not going to do the whole quote, but quote Kitty R's cold, calm worlds drove words drove through Lorana's soul like the High Lord spirit driven through Sturm's flesh. Lorana felt the stones start to shift from under her. The sky and ground mixed the pain cleaved her in two. She's lying, her, Lorana thought desperately, but she knew with despairing certainty that though Kittyara might lie when she chose, she was not lying now. Lorana staggered and nearly fell, only a grim determination not to reveal any weakness before this human woman kept the elf maiden on her feet. Um, Kittyara. It's talking about the dragon lance now saying this is a dragon lance and all this stuff. Um, you know, she's going to take one to see, you know, to study it basically. Um, and then she's, um, she puts her helmet back on um, and she's walking back over to her dragon quote. See, and then she goes she looks at Sturm. Quote, See that he's given a knight's funeral, Kitty said, It will at least take three days to it will take at least three days to rebuild the army. I give you that time to prepare a ceremony befitting him. We will bury our own dead, Lorana said proudly. We ask you for nothing. The memory of Sturm's death, the sight of the knight's body, brought Lorana back to reality like cold water poured in the face of a dreamer. Moving to stand protectively between Sturm's body and the Dragon High Lord, Lorana looked in the brown eyes glittering beneath the behind the dragon mask what will you tell tana she asked abruptly nothing kit simply nothing at all turned she walked away awful awful person but she does something that i still find odd reading it um she's taking off uh, but then she does this uh Quote, then, glittering as it turned over and over, the dragon lance fell from the Dragon Highlord's gloved hand, clattering on the stones that landed at Lerana's feet. Keep it, Kittyar called in a ringing voice. You're going to need it. The dry, blue dragon lifted its wings, caught the air currents, and soared in the sky to vanish into the sun. Now, guys, I know this has been an extended episode. We're almost at three hours, aren't we? Two hours and 12 minutes. Okay, well... This last part of this book is called The Funeral. And it's about Sermon Funeral. And I feel it's almost important to read it virtually in its entirety. Because it's in the end of the book, and it's one of the best things I ever wrote in this series. So. If you're still with me through all that, then you'll stick with me through this, and I think you'll really listen in segments, you idiots. <laughs>
1: Don't listen to it all at once.
0: It's like Dan. I'm I'm really going for Dan Carlin's uh, uh, format here. We'll we'll have five hour episodes sooner or later. Uh, quote the funeral. Quote. Winter's night was dark and starless. The wind had become a gale, driving. Sl- Bringing driving sleet and snow that pierced storm with the sharpness of arrows, freezing blood and spirit. No watch was set. A man standing upon the battlements of the High claris Tower would have frozen to death at his post. There was no need for the watch. All day as long, sun. All day as this, as long as the sun shone the knights had stared across the plains but there was no sign of the dragon army's return even after darkness fell the knights could see few campfires on the horizon on this winter's night as the wind howled among the, the ruins of the crumbled tower like the shrieks of the slaughtered dragons the knights of slamnia buried their dead the bodies were carried into a cave-like sepulcher beneath the tower long ago it had been used for the dead of the knighthood but that had been ages past when human rode to glorious death upon the fields beyond the sepulcher might have remained might have remained forgotten but the but for the curiosity of a kinder once it must have been guarded and well kept, this time, but time had touched even the dead who were thought to be beyond time. The stone coffins were covered with a fine sifting of thick dust. When it brushed away, nothing could be read of the writings carved into the snow. Called the Chamber of Paladine, the sepulchre was a large rectangular room built far below the ground where the destruction of the tower did not affect it. A long narrow staircase led led down from it to two huge iron doors marked with the symbol of Paladine, the platinum dragon ancient symbol of death and rebirth the knights brought torches to light the chamber feeding them into rusted iron sconces upon the crumbling stone walls the stone coffins of the ancient dead lined the, the walls of the room above each one was an iron plaque giving the name of the dead knight his family and the date of his death a center aisle led, led between the rows of coffins toward a mar- marble altar at the head of the room in this central aisle of the chamber of Paladine, the knights lay their dead there was no time to build coffins. All knew the dragon armies would return. The knights must spend their, their time fortifying the ruined walls of the fortress, not building homes f- for those who no longer cared. They carried the bodies of their cam- comrades down to the chamber Paladine and laid them in long rows upon the cold stone floor. The bodies were draped on ancient winding sheets, which had been meant for ceremony or wrapping. There was no time for that either. Each dead knight's sword was laid upon his breath. His breast, while some token of the enemy—an arrow, perhaps, a battled shield, or the claws of a dragon—were laid at his feet. While, when the bodies been carried to the torchlit chamber, the knights assembled. They stood among their dead, each man standing beside the body of a friend, a comrade, a brother. Then, amid a silence so profound, each man could hear his own heart beating. The last three bodies were brought inside, carried upon stretchers. They were attended by a solemn guard guard of honor. This should have been a state funeral, resplendent with trappings detailed by the measure. At the altar should have stood the Grandmaster, arrayed in ceremonial armor. Beside him should have stood the High Clerist, clad in armor covered with the white robes of Cleric of Paladine. Here should have stood the High Justice, his armor covered by the judicial robes of black. The altar itself should have been banked with roses. Golden emblems of the Kingfisher, the crown, and the sword should have been placed upon it. But here at the altar stood only an elf maiden, clad in armor that was dented and stained with blood. Beside her stood an old dwarf, his head bowed in grief, and a chem- kinder, his impish face ravaged by sorrow. The only rose upon the altar was a black one, found in Sturm's belt. The only ornament was a silver dragon lance, black with clotted blood. "'The guard carried the body to the front of the chamber "'and reverent, reverently laid them before the three friends. "'On the right lay the body of Lord Alfred Mar- Markennan, "'his mutilated, hellish corpse mercifully shrouded in white linen. "'On the left lay Derek Crownguard, "'his body covered with white cloth, "'the hideous <coughs> grin grin death had frozen upon his face. "'In the, sa- in the center lay the body of stern Brightblade. "'He was not covered by a white sheet. "'He lay in the armor he had worn at his death, "'his father's armor. "'His father's antique sword was clasping "'cold hands upon his breast.' One other Lorna lay upon a shattered breast, a token none of the Knights recognized. It was the Star Jewel, which Lorna had found in a pool of Knights' own blood. The Jewel was dark, its brilliance fading even when Lorna held it in her hand. Many things be- became clear to her later as she studied the Star Jewel. This, then, was how they shared the dream in Sylvanesti. Had Has Stern re- realized its power? Did he know of the link that had been forged between, between himself and Lorna? No, Lorna thought sadly. He'd probably not know, nor could he realize the love it represented. No human could. Carefully, she placed it upon his breast. As she thought, with the sorrow of the dark-haired elven woman, who must know the heart upon which the glittering star jewel rested, was stilled forever. The honor guard stepped back, waiting. The assembled knights stood with heads bowed for a moment, then lifted them to face Lorana. This should have been the time for proud speeches, for, for recitals of the dead knight's heroic deeds. But for a moment, all that could be heard was the wheezing sobs of the old dwarf and Tesholf's quiet snuffle. Lorana looked down into and and Sturm's peaceful face, and she could not speak. For a moment she envied Sturm, envied him fiercely, he was beyond pain, beyond suffering, beyond loneliness. His war had been fought, he was victorious. You left me, Lorana cried in agony left to cope with left me cope this with by myself, first tennis, then I stand, now you I can't, I'm not strong enough. I can't let you go, Sturm. your death was senseless, meaningless, a fraud, and a sham. I won't let you go, not quietly, not without anger. Lorana lifted her head, her eyes blazing in the torchlight. You expect a noble speech, she said, her voice cold as air of the sepulcher. A noble speech honoring the heroic deads of these men who have died. Well, you won't get it. Not from me. The knights glanced at each other, faces dark. These men, who should have been united in a brotherhood forged when Quinn was young, died in bitter discord, brought about by pride, ambition, and greed. Your eyes turned to Derek Crownguard, but he was not totally to blame. You are. All of you. All of you took side in this reckless bid for power. A few knights lowered their heads, some pale with shame and anger. Rana choked her with tears then she felt flint's hand slip into her squeezing it comfortably swallowing she drew a deep breath only one man was above this only one man among you lived the code every day of his life and for most of the days he was not a knight or rather he was a knight where it meant the most in spirit in heart not in some official list "'Reaching behind her, Laurent took the blood-send dragon lance "'from the altar and raised it high over her head. "'As she lifted the lance, her spirit was lifted. "'The wings of darkness that had hovered above her were banished. "'When she raised her voice, the knights stared at her in wonder. "'Her beauty blessed them like the beauty of a dawning spring day. "'Tomorrow I will leave this place,' Laurent said softly, "'her luminous eyes on the dragon lance. "'I will go to Palanthas.' I will take with me the story of this day. I will take this lance in the head of the dragon. I will dump that sinister, bloody head upon the steps of their magnificent magnificent palace. I will stand upon the dragon's head and make them listen to me. And Palanthas will listen. They will see their danger. And then we will go to Sancrest and to Urgoth and to every other place in this world where people refuse to lay down their petty hatreds and join together. For until we conquer the evils within ourselves, and this man did, we can never conquer the great evil that threatens to engulf us lorana raised her heads and, and her eyes to heaven paladine she called out her force, her voice ringing like a trumpet's call we come to you paladine escorting these sel- the soul of these noble knights who died in the high Claris tower give us who are left behind in this war-torn world the same nobility of spirit that graces this man's death lorana closed her eyes as tears spilled and heated and checked down her cheeks no longer did she grieve for Storm. her sorrow was for herself for missing his presence for having to tell tanis of his friend's death for having to live in this world without this noble friend by her side Slowly, she laid the lance upon the altar. Then she knelt before in a moment, feeling Flint's arm around her shoulder and Tesshoff's gentle touch on her hand. Then it goes into, there's this, this prayer of humor. It's like, I, I don't read. It's, a, I guess, a note uh, of my own rule that I have instituted. I do not read poetry. I just read prose. It's a beautiful thing. Um, if, you, if you should read the book, um it's very good it's a stanza that repeats itself um it's actually quite good even for somebody who doesn't like poetry i kind of like it but as we're now you know finishing this up i'm not going to um you know maim it because i can't i'm not good with poetry but quote the chant ended slowly solemnly the knights walk forward one by one to pay homage to the dead "'each kneeling for a moment before the altar. "'Then the Knights of Slandia left the chamber of Paladine "'and returning to their cold beds "'to try and find some rest before the next day's dawning. "'Lorana, Flint Flint and Tasselhoff stood alone beside their friend, "'their arms around each other, their hearts full. "'A chill wind whistled through the open door of the sepulcher "'where the honor guard stood, ready to seal the chamber.' Caron be a Reorx, said Flint in Dwarven, wiping his gnarled and shaking hand across his eyes. Friends, meet in For i in his pouch, he took out a bit of wood, beautifully carved in the shape of a rose. i got to tell you guys, I'm having a hard time not crying reading this. Gently, he laid it upon Sturm's breast beside a lawn of star jewel. Goodbye, Sturm, Tess said awkwardly. I only have one gift that, that you would approve of. I don't think you'll understand, but then again, maybe you do now. Maybe you understand better than I do. Tasselhoff placed a small white feather in the cold, night's cold hand. Quiss on Elvis. Elvis uh, Laura whispered Elvin. Our love, our love's bond eternal. She paused, unable to leave him in, the, in this darkness. Come, Lorana, Flint said gently. We've said our goodbyes. We must let him go. Reorks waits for him. Lorana drew back. Silent without looking back, the three friends, free friends climbed the narrow stairs leading from the sepulcher and walked steadfastly into the chill, stinging sleet of the bitter winter's night that's not the end that is the end of the companions but somebody else knows he's passed too and we got to get in and we will read that and it's it's not quite as long but um, I feel it's important to say too. Quote, Far away from the frozen land of Salamnia, one other person said goodbye to Stern Brightblade. Sylvan asked he had not changed with the passing months. Though Lorax's nightmare was ended, and his body lay beneath the soil of his beloved country, the land still remembered Lorax's terrible dreams. The air smelled of death and decay. The trees bent and twisted in unending agony. Misshapen beasts roamed the woods, seeking an end to their tortured existence. In vain, Alana watched from her room in the Tower of the Stars for some sign of change. The Griffins had come back. As she had known they would once the dragon was gone she hadn't fully intended to leave so nasty and return to her people in argoth but the griffins carried disturbing news war between the elves and humans it was a mark of the change in alana a mark of her suffering these past months that she found this news distressing before she met tanis and the others she would have accepted war between elves and humans perhaps even welcomed it but now she saw this as only the work of the evil forces in the world she were she should return to her people she knew Perhaps she could end this insanity, but she told herself the weather was unsafe for traveling. In reality, she shrank from facing the shock and the disbelief of her people when she told them of the destruction of their land and her promise to her dying father, that the elves would return and rebuild after they had helped the humans fight the Dark Queen and her minions. Oh, she would win, she had no doubt, but she dreaded leaving the solitude of her self-imposed exile to face the tumult of the world beyond silvanasty And she dreaded even as she longed to see the humans she loved. The knight, whose proud and noble face came to her in dreams, whose very soul she shared through the star jewel. Unknown to him, she stood beside him in his fight to save his honor. Unknown to him, she shared his agony and came to learn the depths of his noble spirit. Her love for him grew daily, as did her fear of loving him. And so Alana continually put off her departure. I will leave, she told herself, when I see some sign, I may I give my people a sign of hope. Otherwise, they will not come back. They will give up in despair. Day after day, she looked from her window, but no sign came. The one nights grew longer, the darkness deepened. One evening Alana walked upon the battle went to the Tower of the Stars. It was afternoon in Salami, and then on another tower, Stern Brightblade faced a sky blue dragon, and a dragon high lord called the Dark Lady. Suddenly Alana felt a strange and terrifying sensation, as though the world had ceased to turn. A shivering shattering bite "'Pain pierced her body, driving her to the stone below. "'Sobbing in fear and grief, she clutched a star jewel "'she wore around her neck and watched an egg "'as its life flickering and died. "'So this is my sign,' she screamed bitterly, "'holding the darkened jewel in her hands, "'shaking up the heavens. "'There is no hope. "'There is nothing but death and despair. "'Holding the jewel so tightly that "'the sharp points bit into her flesh, Alana stumbled unseen through the darkness "'to her room in the tower. "'From there she looked out once out more "'upon her dying land. "'Then with a shuddering sob, "'she closed and locked the wooden shutters "'on her window.' Let the world do what it will, she told herself bitterly. Let my people meet their end in their own evil way. In their own way, evil will prevail. There is nothing we can do to stop it. I will die here with my father. That night, she made one final journey out into the land. Carelessly, she threw a thin cape over her shoulders and headed for a grave lying beneath a twisted, tortured tree. In her hand, she held the star jewel. Throwing herself upon the ground, Alana began to dig frantically with her bare hands, scratching at the frozen ground of her father's grave with fingers that were soon raw and bleeding. She didn't care. She welcomed the pain that was so much easier to bear than the pain in her heart. Finally, she dug a small hole. The red moon, Lunatari, crept into the sun, night sky, tinging the silver moon's light with blood. Alanna stared at the star jewel until she could no longer see it through her tears. Then she cast into the hole she had dug. She forced herself to quit crying. Wiping the tears from her face, she started to fill in the hole. Then she stopped. Her hands trembled. Hesitantly, she reached down and brushed the dirt from, her, from the star jewel, wondering if her grief had driven her mad. No, from it came a tiny glimmer of light that grew in stronger as she watched. Elena lifted the shimmering jewel from the grave. But he's dead, she said softly, staring at the jewel that sparked in the silver light. I know death has claimed him. Nothing can change that. Yet, why this light... A sudden rustling sound startled her. Alana fell back, fearing that the hidden feet tree above Lorik's grave might be reaching her in its creaking branches. But as she watched, she saw the limbs of the tree cease their tortured writhing. They hung motionless for an instant then, with a sigh, turned toward the heavens. The trunk straightened and the bark became smooth, and then he glistened in the silver moonlight. Blood ceased to drip from the tree. The leaves felt living sap once more flow through their veins. Alana gasped riding unsteadily to her feet she looked around the uh, around the land but nothing else had changed No, the other trees were different only this one above lorak's grave i'm going mad she thought fiercely tur- fiercely she turned back to fearfully she turned to-, to look back at the tree upon her father's grave no it was changed even as she watched it grew more beautiful carefully alana hung the sterile jewel back in its place over her heart then she turned to walk back toward the tower there was much to be done before she left her for ergoth the next morning, as the sun shed its pale light over the unhappy land of Silvanesti, Alana looked out over the forest. Nothing had changed. A noxious green mist still hung low over the suffering trees. Nothing would change, she knew, until the elves came back and worked to make it change. Nothing had changed except the tree above Lorak's grave. Farewell, Lorak, Alana called until he returned. Summoning her, her griffin, she climbed to its strong back and spoke a firm word of command. The griffin spread its feathery wings and soared into the air, rising in swift spirals above the stricken land of Sylvanesti. And a word from Alana, it turned its head west and began the long flight to Urgoth. Far below in Sylvanesti, one tree's beautiful green leaves stood out in splendid contrast to the bleak desolation of the forest around it. It swayed in the winter wind, singing soft music, as it spread its leaves, its limbs to shelter Lorak's grave from the winter's darkness, waiting for spring. It's a powerful ship. That's one of the finest endings. That's one thing that Margaret Weiss and Tracy can really do is really, I'm um, had to fight from crying in a couple of points because it's, it's very powerful. And uh, I have openly cried reading books that they've written. Um, that's the last part of this book. And we have one more in this series and I'll hope you join me for the first part of dragon the spring dawning. Yeah. <laughs> you.